shoot the core cat. Welcome to Shoot the Core Cast, the official companion podcast to the RF Generation Shmup Club. This is the family-friendly Shmup-themed podcast where we like rank, so we put some rank in our rank, so we can rank while we rank. From RFGeneration.com, I am Metal Fro, also known as the Game Boy Guru, and my co-pilot on this mission, as always, is... Addicted, also known as Addicted to Shmups. And with us for this episode, we have two special guests, they are... Hello. Hi, it's Mark from the Electric Underground. Hello, it's Plasmo. And thank you, gentlemen, both for being with us today. As I mentioned, uh, RFGeneration.com is the site that hosts us, and that's where you want to be. We have a huge forum that uh, has a bunch of cool topics to discuss, gaming-related and otherwise. We have a giant database full of games, so if you're a collector like uh, Addicted and myself, you can catalog your collection or your library of games on the site. It has tons of variants and uh, out-of-region games, so, you know, it's game listings from all over the world and a lot of great resources there, plus articles on the front page. We have an active Discord that you can go to, linked right from the front page, uh, where many of us will post topics to, t- to discuss or things like that, and we have our own Shoot the Corecast topic on the Discord channel as well, where you can post screenshots of the game that we're playing or discuss the, the Shmup of the Month or the podcast episode. It is all free to use and free to sign up, so go there right now, rfgeneration.com. Uh, so, we are here to discuss Battle Grega. But before we get into that, uh, I thought we would quickly go over a couple of the responses that we got on the question of the month that I tweeted out a few days ago, which Battle Garega is infamous for its rank system. And so, what classic shooting game do you think could be improved with dynamic rank? And we got oh, a handful of responses. That's a cool question. Uh, at STG Shmups says Capcom's 1942. 19xx did this though maybe metal black next one comes to us from at goldwing 1992 gun frontier by taito yeah and that is interesting because that actually sparked a bit of conversation and so instead of multiple um additional responses we actually had quite a bit of discussion on that point um there was some some folks who kind of chimed in and said well that game already has rank uh stg smups you know, was he said, I thought of saying the same thing, but it kind of does already. And there was someone else that that mentioned the dynamic rank. Oh, it was Soft Drink. Yeah, Soft Drink underscore 117 says, Gun Frontier already has dynamic rank, though. It's just very aggressive and seems mostly implemented as an anti-autofire mechanism. Fantastic game, too. And Neo Antoine also mentioned that uh, he's a fan of the soundtrack in that game. So, kind of cool when you can sort of spark some side discussion on that. And then we also had uh, at Moo Moo Town, who says, 
literally none. Dynamic rank sucks. <laughs> oh, you gotta have one of those. Yeah, which I always, I always thought was funny, because, uh, you know, rank is one of those kind of div- divisive issues in, in games. All right, you want to take the last one I just added? Yeah, who just stole mine. All right, so... Uh, our last one comes to us from at Void Audio, and he says R-Type, and I agree with this one. I think R-Type would be great to have dynamic rank in there. The patterns can get so predictable, especially when you're dealing with the arcade game that you, with all the safe spots in there. I think it would be neat to change it up. But then again, I, I would like to see R-Type get the M2 treatment and have different modes in there like they've been doing with the cave games. I think that will be a wonderful celebration of Irem's masterpiece, but if you can't tell, I really like our type I don't know, uh, Addicted. Adding dynamic rank to our type just seems like... I, I'm not sure even how to put it. Do you hate yourself, or do you hate other people who play our type <laughs> that game's difficult enough as it is <laughs> i say give it the full treatment give it a soundtrack I me mean, call it our type black label oh there you go there, or do something different with it in order to spice it up i mean it's the same way that m2 does it right you have or i mean we'll talk about this with grega but grega they redid the way that rank works if you're looking rank works entirely different it's an entirely new game I would love to see a, a remix, not just an HD update like we've already seen. Let's mix up the rules a bit. Let's make it more challenging for these people who you know, sit in Japanese arcades and stroke rubber duckies for luck. You know, <laughs> let, let's, I'm not, for anyone who hasn't heard this story, there's this ja- little Japanese lady who was probably on her fifth loop of, or was it third loop? It was pretty high up there within Gradius. And she had a little rubber rubber ducky that she would stroke to get one to help her get past the hard parts there. But it was just uh, I mean, uh, amazing. The, the type of people who know the game inside and out, it would be great to get a new mode. And I would love to see it get the M2 treatment. Maybe we'll get something after R-Type Final 2, maybe? Here's hoping. Hmm. Interesting. What about, uh, what about you guys? What do you think? I think give Gradius rank, because... I mean, Gradius already has Gradius Syndrome, where if you die, you basically have to reset the game <laughs> anyway. So throw some rank in there. Why not? And people play Gradius with like, how many loops do people go in that game? Like an insane yeah, amount ridiculous. of loops. I think it would be great. I think it would be great if you when you hit loop 30, the game just gets absolutely absurd. <laughs> and you and it doesn't become a game of, oh, how long can you sit and play? It becomes a game of, how long can you battle its insane rank? I think that would be pretty awesome. So I'm going with huh. Radius. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, if, if we are talking about rank, um, I think we're sometimes um, making it bigger than it actually is because I think you will have trouble actually finding a game, um, a shooting game that has no rank whatsoever. Most of them do have rank in some form or the other. So Radius, for example, has some pretty strong rank but um, when you die or the bullets get uh, slower some enemies are not shooting at all and I, I'm, not, I'm not sure with art type but I wouldn't be surprised if this one has also rank and um, the, the other games I, mentioned as well so um, I think the spirit of the question is Garega style rank not just yeah, rank right, but right. like Garega style rank right. I think that's the idea 
where the game gets absurd and it just beats your beats you down until you cry. Like with Grega, if you decide, hey, I'm gonna pick up all them items, I'm gonna shoot all the time, I'm gonna drop all those bullets, I'm gonna collect all the extends, <laughs> and you hit stage five or whatever it is, then the game's like, okay, you're done. <laughs> I think I think that's kind of the idea of the question, right? And that's why I think it'd be fun to see it in Gradius, personally. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I think of a, a classic shoot 'em up that I know has a dynamic rank system, you know, I think of something like Xanak. Uh, when we played through that, you know, that's one of those things where, depending on the weapon that you pick up, the game changes uh, quite a bit. You'll know if you pick up item number two in Xanak, which is the sort of front shield thing, suddenly everything is out to get you and is coming at you nonstop because it's trying to sort of use up all of that weapon two energy that you have. Um, whereas if you choose a different weapon, the game changes fairly dynamically to sort of meet you where you're at, if you will. And so, yeah, I mean, call it Garega rank or or what have you, but I'm thinking something a bit more dynamic than just, oh, when you die, the game gets a little easier, or sort of like, if you get this power up, the game changes, or, you know, once you get past this threshold of lives, then, uh, you know, the game gets more difficult, or it starts to kind of change its approach, or what have you. So, something that makes the gameplay less predictable, I guess, is maybe more what I'm going for. Yeah, I think in my in my head it's just not as separated, I would say, so <laughs> I have to admit that I haven't really thought about this too much. Um, rank is for me something pretty integral to so many games, and I, I don't really distinguish between Garaga rank and uh, other games rank. Um, but, I, but I can see where you're coming from. Um, so it naturally would have to be a game with a lot of um, power-up items or some score items to pick up and um, punish the player more for picking those up. Right. Don Pachi. Just just to torture Plaz, have it, made, <laughs> have it be Don Pachi. Well, this game also has a, quite a strong rank system already. It's like the longer your chain, the higher the rank goes. <laughs> so, yeah, that would so it's work. like you get punished for chaining right. yeah that'd be fun yeah I guess for me you know it's it seems like it would be interesting to to think of a a very malleable or dynamic rank system being a part of something like something you wouldn't even think of necessarily as as having much of a rank system like Star Soldier, you know, the original Star Soldier, or even Star Force from Tecmo, you know, a game like that, you wouldn't think of so much as having that kind of a rank. Or in a similar vein, maybe, uh, some of the early caravan shooters that, as you score more points, maybe start to punish you a little bit more or make it more difficult to continue to score at that level. Um, so that during the two-minute or five-minute run or whatever it is that you're doing, uh, you really have to have a much more well-thought-out approach so that you're either not scoring too much right at the beginning and you're waiting toward the end of the stage to kind of ramp that up, or that you just go all-in and learn how to deal with whatever the game is going to be throwing at you. 
So that that to me seems like it could be an interesting an interesting way to do it. I think it'd be great for the games that have multi loops, but they're the like the earlier ones where they just loop for hours and people play them for hours and hours and it's just kind of a question of endurance at some point. Right. I think it'd be good to include some kind of ranking mechanic in there where the game will just overwhelm you at some point rather than you just having to take a nap and so you stop playing or whatever it is. I think that would be a, a nice change for those games. Yeah. That that whole multi- endless looping thing kind of fascinates me. I mean, addicted your story about the, the uh, older Japanese lady who's playing through multiple loops of, of Gradius. I'm assuming she's doing this sitting at a candy cab in a Japanese arcade and it just seems like quite a time investment. I don't know. I don't quite understand the appeal of that, but there must be some because there are there are those who take it upon themselves to do multiple loops. That's just interesting. Yeah, I to personally think about. have no interest in those types of games. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> it's like, come on, I got better things to do. <laughs> right. I got better games to play. <laughs> once once I get through the first loop of a game like that. To me, it seems like, okay, uh, I've I've seen the core experience that the game has to offer. If I want to continue to invest in it, I can, but I don't feel like I have to. Whereas, I think that's one of the reasons why some of the later games, particularly those from Cave, have become so well-loved, because the core experience isn't just the first loop. In so many of those games, the full experience uh, is the core experience, which is getting through the first loop, then realizing there's a second loop, and that things have changed, and you sort of have to, I'm not going to say relearn how to play the game, but you really have to change your approach and your tactics uh, in order to continue to play, and in order to master that second loop. You know, even though the... The, the tanks on the ground and the turrets uh, and the you know planes and spaceships and whatever may be coming from the same position on screen the same way that they did in the first loop their behavior is going to change and also you know taking into account things like revenge bullets or new fire patterns or denser fire patterns and things it really pushes you to a whole a whole other way of thinking for what is essentially the same layout of of base content so yeah i think i think that approach is a much more i don't know more sustainable because it's going to take most people longer to learn how to get through a second loop like that than it is just to get through four loops of Gradius where each one is just bullets are a little faster and there's a few more of them and all of that. And so it's a matter of, of figuring out the best way to kind of misdirect fire and, and that sort of thing. Um, so it seems like it's a, a much more, I'm trying to think of the right word. Mature is not the right word, but you have to think about the East versus West mentality, right? The people who are going to be masters of a game are people who are going to be looking to speedrun the game in the West, by and large. Well, the East mentality is getting very good with something and 
mastering it, becoming a master of it. So it's different mindsets as well. Sure. And mm-hmm. yes, it, it is good to have a remix mode, which is why they went with the tool. And there was, that's why I said we need those type of stuff for Gradius, and we need that type of stuff for our type is what I refer to as the M2 treatment. If you look at the way they did it for Grega here, you have an entirely different way that the rank was done. They have different modes for Ketsui. There's, you got to do something to make the game more interesting. And if you you do get it where it goes one one loop and you've seen everything, it can get a little bit boring on there unless you're really interested in becoming an absolute master or speedrunner of the game. Right. Now that you mentioned this East um, versus the West, um, I would actually say it's the other way around. Um, because when I um, view it from a um, competitive perspective, um, usually what happens in Japan is that you can only set scores um, while the um, game center is, of course, while it's open. So you have eight hours maximum. And all those crazy marathon scores you find on Twin Galaxies, for example, Q-Bird or Missile Command, like oh, all those Golden yeah. Era marathon, um, if you play, when you play the game like for 50, 60, 70 hours. So those uh-huh. uh, kind of challenges, they are popular in the West, but not in the East at all. So these extreme hmm. marathon um, challenges, usually not for shmups, but more like the, the classic Golden Era games. Um, you can find those people on Twin Galaxies, but not in Japan usually. Yep, and we are knowing historically, we all know that those Twin Galaxies 15-hour runs were all played legitimately by the players, and that there was no kind of suspect behavior going on there. And uh, <laughs> so, yes, that is how the games are meant to be played. <laughs> Play them for 15 hours with with no auto sitting. No auto fire, <laughs> no bathroom breaks, you know, nothing like that. It's totally legit. That's how it was done, and that's the correct way to play these games. <sighs> you don't have an axe to grind, Mark, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I gotta sneak it in onto your podcast. It's fun. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> <sighs> but actually, I, I did want to say on a like more uh con- constructive note here i do think it's interesting the two loop system from a japanese like arcade perspective because i think cave kind of learned their lesson with that because they realized okay we're basically doubling the game time for these expert players and we are losing money so i think that's why we start to see that two loop system go away in the later cave titles because they start to realize wait a minute here <laughs> we're losing money because the guys can sit down at the cab for 45 45- minutes on a credit rather than with like Mushi or with SDOJ where we you know just put the difficulty select up up front and then we limit the amount of time they can play those credits yeah. that's my theory anyway I think that makes sense and I think that's why white label of Dodonpachi DOJ had that like thing where they took all your lives and stuff because they wanted to get you off that cabinet <laughs> like okay off get off <laughs> the cabinet we need this money I think that was that's my theory, anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's another reason why they added all the talking to right in five. They want to get you off there as soon as possible. Yeah, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's interesting to see how that has carried over into, you know, into kind of Dojin development and, and indie games. Uh, you have something like Zero Ranger, which has multiple loops, but it's not a very long game. And then you yeah. have something Baby like Crimson Clover which is one loop, but 
you have multiple difficulty levels and multiple modes to kind of attack. So it's sort of a different approach. I think that's... I, w- I wonder what Plasmo thinks. That's the better way, don't you think, Plasmo? Having like the Mushi style rather than the yes, yeah. Dodonpachi two-loop style? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, let the, yeah. let, let the player choose and decide whether he wants to go for the easier mode, the regular mode, or the crazy mode. Um, but don't make it um, via loops. Um, I think it's just a cheap design decision. If you just loop the whole game again and again, that's, that's just cheap. And I'm quite happy that we've moved away from that. And I think it with like Dodonpachi and Ketsui, I think it was kind of a little bit antiquated where they didn't really think it over too much. Because yeah. from Cave's perspective, they're not making more money doing that. They're making less money doing that than having the... Mu- and when they sat down and made Mushi, they're like, okay, wait a minute, we need to make money on these games, so let's have it do it this way instead. Right, yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely the motivation behind this. I mean, I, I think I can tolerate a second loop. It's not too bad. I still think it's bad game design, but I can... If I, if I really like the game a lot, I can tolerate a second one, but please then make it stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. All right. Well... Good discussion, and thank you to those who have uh, contributed to the question of the month. Uh, so, Addicted, would you like to maybe set us up with a brief intro to Garega and the, its development? All right, but you're, if I mispronounce, it's on you. No, all right. <laughs> Battle Garega was developed by Rising Company, LTD, and published by Aiden in 1996 in arcades. I believe it ranked 8 out of 10 uh, for the that 1996 for the most money made that year in Japanese oh. arcades. Very nice. Congrats. <laughs> uh, Grega was rising 3D 3D shooting it what? Third. Yeah, okay. I was All right. <laughs> typos got Sorry. me. All right. <laughs> Garega was Rising's third shooting game, fourth game overall, and his first in the Bat Trilogy of games, those being Armed Police Bat Rider, and, the, sorry, the other two being Armed Police, oh boy. Alright, let me take a sip of coffee here. <laughs> Alright. Garega was Rising's third shooting game, fourth game overall. In the first in the Bat Trilogy of games, which consisted of Battle Garega, Armed Police Bat Rider, and Battle Back Raid. Development of was headed up by Shinobu Yagawa, who also did programming for games such as Pink Sweets and Ibarra, which I'm sure we'll talk about more and how those are different than pretty much anything else. Rising began in 1993 and developed their first shooter, my excuse me, Maho Daisakusen, aka Sorcerer Striker, released to arcades. And this was the first game in the Maho, Maho Daisakusen trilogy, followed by Shapu Maho Daisakusen, also known as Kingdom Grand Prix, excuse me, Kingdom Grand Prix, and Great Maho Daisakusen, also known as Damaho. Yeah, and that's that's one thing I wasn't sure of is, uh, and maybe you know this, Plasmo, uh, do you know actually how to pronounce, is it Dimaho or Daimaho or Daimahu? Do you have any idea? <laughs> it's probably supposed to be Daimaho. Okay. Yeah, I've always wondered that, because as I've started to sort of learn little tidbits about Japanese pronunciation, it makes me wonder whether that's 
supposed to be pronounced in a traditional Japanese pronunciation style or more of a like an English style. Yeah, the, the, the funny thing is that this is actually the overseas title, right? The international title for this game. So the Japanese name is actually um, Great Maho Daisaksen. And uh, Daimaho is some kind of um, spelling to still make it look Japanese, I think, but um, uh. for, for an international audience, actually. So this is the, the English uh, title, actually. Yeah. Why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why? Well, that's a good one. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> They're just trying to destroy me because I can't pronounce any of these. And I always <laughs> look at them in fear when I have to talk about them in videos. I'm like, oh, why, Rising? Why? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's like Yahoo. It's Dima. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Alright, other notable rising titles are Bloody Roar 1 and 2, which they developed for Hudson. 1944, oh, awesome. 1944, The Loop Master, which they developed for Capcom, as well as Sokio Garentai, also known as Terra Driver, oh, excuse me, Terra Diver, and Battle Blade, as well as three Golgo 13 games for Namco. And if you have a chance to play those Golgo 13 games, definitely do. They're a lot of fun. In the year 2000, oh boy, now I'm in, you got me going in the year 2000. <laughs> Conan O'Brien here, thanks. All right, in the year 2000, Rising folded into its sister company, Aiding, and hasn't developed any more shoot 'em ups since 2000. Battle Garega also has a spiritual successor, Ibarra from Cave. Shinobu Yigawa designed that one as well at the behest of Cave, who asked him to make a Battle Garega like game for them. Battle Garega was on the Toplan version 2 PCB, which is the same hardware as several later Toplan games, such as Tatsujin 2, also known as Truxton 2. 2. Yep. Fix 8, Batsugan, and Grindstormer V, also known as VV. Battle Garega received a port on the Sega Saturn in 1998, which has become highly sought after and, well, somewhat expensive even though it lacks a degree of accuracy to its arcade original. Which, you know, we were playing this through, and I had mentioned to you and Mark that it was seemed to run a little bit fast. I think it runs at 60 frames per second instead of the 57.4, I believe the arcade version does. It just seems like the Ketsui PS3 port fast. Ah, uh, okay. Yep. The Saturn games run a little bit fast. That's what ultimately uh, is the downfall of Dodonpachi on the Saturn and a lot of, well, a lot of reasons, but that's one of them. Sure. In 2016, M2 released Battle Garega Reb 2016, which presents an arcade-accurate port of the original arcade game, but also M2's now standard Super Easy mode in a premium arrange mode, which tempers the game's rank system somewhat to make the game more approachable. This release includes many features such as save states, multiple soundtracks, easy unlock for the extra ships, online leaderboards, a replay scoring system, and more. You know, I like Mark's take on this. It is a great arcade port with some quality of life features. Definitely. One of the big ones for me is the colored bullets mode because I have a lot of trouble just seeing uh, bullets that blend into the backgrounds in any game, but especially freaking Grega. And so being able to turn those colored bullets on is a huge selling point for me. And the reason why I actually 
will probably always play the PS4 port over emulation is because or over the PCB either because I can't see the bullets in the original version anyway so that, I mean that's a huge deal to me the colored bullets mode well they knew it was the issue because with Rev 2 they changed the standard bullets over to not pulsating but they're, they're little round bullets for majority of the stuff to make it easier and that's in the Saturn port yeah yep it's really interesting to see how the Saturn version was used as a framework for the M2 port and how much they built upon it added more quality of life features. Yeah, definitely. Well, M2 are really good about looking out at the other ports and saying, okay, what can we add here? What can we bring to the table here? Like with the PS3 port of Ketsui, when you compare that to the PS4 port of Ketsui, there's no comparison because M2 were like, okay, let's completely annihilate what the PS3 port has to offer or the Xbox 360 port has to offer and uh, bring the heat with Destiny. So, yeah, they're definitely the gold standard with that stuff. I did like that they brought over the soundtrack on Ketsui and the same thing here with yeah this version. I, I found that all versions, a little spoiler here, but I found all versions of the soundtrack to be great, but it was really great to switch in between them. There, I have to... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I, I just want to um, make a quick note on um, bullet visibility um, once more. Because um, I, I, I think it was an issue they realized uh, from the get-go. There are some PCB revisions, uh, like just a few weeks or maybe a month, maybe two months, after the um, Japanese release that already have um, a revision with... Um, like easier to see bullets so this um was well so to say fixed uh, in the arcade already um but of course everybody was still playing on the original and then the saturn port has picked up on this again um i'm, I'm personally not a big fan of those colored bullets because i think it doesn't work well stylistically but i can see if you're having trouble seeing those bullets and many people have then it's just no fun to play the game so i can i can understand why people want to have those um, bullets more colored um, but yeah, they they have realized it's a it's an issue very early on. Interesting. So the so those PCBs that have the revised bullet colors are they not the ones that we normally emulate and see emulated, or are they like? Oh, I think rare? they are emulated in Mame as well. Um, you have all the okay. different revisions in Mame, just no one plays them, but they should be available. You can check them out. And why don't people play them? Is there like scoring changes or anything like that? Or is it simply because people are like, oh, we want to play the first version? Because I wasn't aware of this. Um, I think some have additional changes. By, uh, there should, ah, there should okay. be versions that have just the visibility changed, the bullet visibility changed. So that's a version for you. I got to give. I gotta check that out. Yeah, there are, there are a couple, actually. I think it's um, like three or four different um, revisions. For the arcade PCB, it's pretty yeah, crazy. Yeah, there's a ton. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because when I was looking at the uh, Tool Plan version two page on, <clears throat> excuse me, on the uh, System sixteen site, and you know, going through the different the different boards here, there's there's Battle Garega, and then there's Battle Garega new version, and then there's Battle Garega Type two. Um, so you know, it looks. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of them. It's not abundantly clear just from the screenshots uh, what's different other than in Type 3, you know, I can see uh, some of those round yellow bullets, but then there are also, uh, you know, standard bullets as well. So it's, it's, not as, it's not as 
clear uh, from just the screenshots what the differences are, but I would imagine that one of those is probably primarily just the colors. And this is something that, you know, we had some discussion on one of my streams during the month that I was playing. I don't remember who it was, but someone commented on the fact that I was using the pink bullets mode in the PS4 port. And, um, you know, I said, yeah, I just can't, you know, I can't see the, the regular bullets very well against some of the backgrounds because some of the standard long silver or gray bullets blend in quite a bit among the more mechanical backgrounds or gray sky. Oh, yeah. Or that kind of like thing. A, the factory stage is ridiculous. It's oh, absolutely yeah. ridiculous. Trying to see the bullets in that stage, I'm like, forget it. Yeah, the factory stage is ridiculous regardless, but it's it's particularly difficult when so many of the bullets that are coming at you uh, are harder to see against a very similarly colored background. And it got me thinking that it makes me wonder if, you know, obviously if there was already uh, a, a revision so quickly out of the gate, they knew that there was visibility problems. But it also almost makes me wonder if the way that the game was designed was was done in such a way because, you know, I'm playing this game in a much different way than it would have been played during the time of its release. You know, you, you go to a Japanese arcade and you're sitting down at a candy cab and you've got a CRT monitor that's usually pretty bright and it's right there in front of you, say, 18 inches from your face. Whereas I'm playing on you know, a 55-inch TV on the M2 port, an LCD screen that's several feet from my couch, and I've got all these, you know, M2 gadgets on the sides that I'm looking at. And, uh, you know, it's a pretty bright TV, but it's certainly not the kind of brightness that you would get from a CRT screen that's that close to you. And so it's it's a different it's a different I've experience. Actually, I've actually tested this because... Uh... I went through this whole space here where I, like I said, I actually have like vision issues. Like, so I have trouble seeing bullets in lots of games, let alone Garega's bullets. But I tried this. So I put Garega on a massive CRT and uh, I had tr more trouble seeing it because of like, it, it just wasn't as high resolution. You can't huh. quite make out the shapes as clearly. So I think my best luck has been putting it on a huge, like a uh, FreeSync monitor. That was my best luck with seeing Garega. I don't know if being on a cab actually helps that or not, to be honest. Interesting. That's my been, been my experience, though. I think what would probably help with being in a cab would at least make it small enough that you could have a vision of the screen without having to maybe tilt your head. You could see everything all at once. I, I think being able to have entire control or at least entire visibility of the play field would be what you get out of keeping it on a cab or within a smaller monitor setting. Some of those bullets in the factory stage are tiny. They are these little baby bullets. That's what gets me most of the time is factory, the part with the tank rush after the, the wall or whatever it is. Oh, I'll just be flying around and my ship explodes. I'm okay. I guess a bullet hit me there. <laughs> That's where I really struggle is that stage with those tiny little bullets. I can't see them. I literally just cannot see them. And the fun part is, too, is sometimes in this mode, uh, Eaglet ran into this at Stunfest, sometimes 
uh, the bolts go invisible because there's too many sprites on screen and the, the game's like, okay, we can't draw all these sprites. So sometimes you can actually get hit by invisible bullets. As happened to uh, Eaglet at a Stunfest a few years back. Yeah, that happens in a lot of games, actually. Um, cave games as well. Yeah. So when you hit that um, sprite limit, um, stuff becomes invisible. And it is an issue. Um, yeah, Not really connected to the bullet visibility, which is a design choice. Um, some people like it, well, some I, don't. Yeah. I brought it up because it happens in that same section. Right. It happens in yeah. the section, in that it's, stupid it's tank section. Version. So you got, yeah. you got mini bullets you can't see, and then you got invisible bullets that you just have to hope <laughs> they're... So uh, my experience playing Garega without that colored bullet uh, mode on is I'm just flying around and my ship explodes. I'm like, hey, I think something hit me. Like, that's how it feels a lot of times. So, yeah, I'm a big... I'm a big staunch defender of the colored bullets mode. <laughs> yeah, and that, definitely. That kind of echoes my experience with the game when I first started playing it. Now, of course, when I first booted up Garega years ago, um, when I learned about it and it was available in MAME, you know, I booted it up. This has probably been almost 20 years ago, but I I fired it up and I played it, and I had a hard time seeing the bullets even back then on what was probably a 15-inch uh, CRT computer monitor, um, just, you know, messing around with it on that. And now, of course, that's a lot smaller than what you would have seen in in an arcade cabinet at that time. But, yeah, I, I definitely experienced that issue with the bullet visibility and, and some of that, and it's probably one of the many reasons why I never really put much time into it. Um, and also why, when I started importing Saturn games, why I probably skipped over Garega early on, because I probably felt like my experience in MAME was enough to kind of put me off the game, or at least make me believe this game's probably out of my reach and out of my capability level, I'll say, uh, which 20 years ago would certainly have been uh, true, um, based on how I was playing a lot of these games back then. So, I guess let's kind of dive into some more specifics about the game. You know, it's a pretty simple setup. Uses three buttons, one to fire your, your main weapon. Um, you've got your B button, which is, uh, you can call it bomb, but it's sort of like a special weapon. Right, yeah. Uh, so depending on the the plane or the ship that you select is, is going to vastly determine the kind of special weapon that you have. Because a couple of them have a more traditional bomb style, whereas a couple of them use something that's completely different. You know, like one of the one of the planes has a flamethrower and and, oh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, who was it? Miyamoto, one of the unlockables, which we'll get into uh, as we go along, uses a a completely different kind of thing. Do you think that so many of these STGs had three buttons because of the JAMA standard? Do you think that was the reasoning for designing around like this? That would make sense. Probably. And then you have a third button, the C button, uh, and that is to form up your options. And so as you go along through the game, you can pick up not only power-ups for your primary weapon, but also up to four options, which will fly along with your plane or ship. And you have several different formations that you can use. 
with those options to sort of orient them in a particular direction or in a specific pattern. So you've got the default formation, which is a spread. It sort of points them forward with a slight outward angle to kind of give you a, a bit of a spread fire. You've got the tail option, which sort of reverses that and fires behind you or underneath of your craft, if you will. Then you've got the front options, which moves all of them right out in front of your ship and gives you very strong forward fire. Um, there's an option that rotates them around your ship uh, so that they just kind of form a ring and then fire in all directions. And then you have the trace, which is like basically whatever direction you move your, your plane or ship, those options will move in the opposite direction. And so right. it'll sort of fire in that direction opposite of whatever direction you're moving. There's also the special formations. Yeah, which uh, are pretty cool. Um, there's the wide formation, which if, um, if you let five of these small shot items fall off of the screen, and then you pick up an option before the sixth small shot item falls off the screen, then you get the wide formation, which is basically like the default forward formation, but just spread out wider so that your options cover a wider area uh, of effect. I didn't find this one particularly useful because I found that because most everything other than popcorn enemies tend to take more than a couple of shots to, de to destroy, I felt like it, it wasn't as effective to have them spread out as wide, but if you if you manage to get the wide option, then it'll stay that way until you hit the C button again to cycle through the, the different formations. Similarly, with the homing, you let five of the small special weapon or bomb fragments fall off the screen, and then you pick up a uh, an option before the sixth bomb fragment or weapon fragment falls off the screen, and then you get uh, homing options, which will basically fly around the screen to different enemies or turrets or whatever and target them directly. That's the moneymaker. That's that, the one Yeah, the homing, becomes critical in the later game. The homing yeah. option is, is by far, I think, the most useful one uh, if you're talking about the special ones. It's really, 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 really helpful, uh, particularly with bosses. Um... The search option, uh, you let five of the option items fall off the screen, and then you pick up a sixth, and then it's, I guess it's similar to the, uh, to the homing, except they sort of, they sort of rotate around, and then will target enemies that way. It's like the poor man's homing. Like, sometimes when you lose homing, and you're like, okay, I gotta get something real quick like you know maybe pick up search <laughs> that's yeah. what i've been doing sometimes i don't think i ever actually got the search the search formation activated during any of my playthroughs but i was never trying for it because the homing is just so so useful <laughs> one that i did grab though is the shadow uh and that that you let five medals fall off the screen and then you pick up an option before the sixth medal falls off 
I probably did that a couple of times on accident when the screen was full of bullets and I had medals coming out that I couldn't grab. <laughs> um, and again, with all of these, you hit the C button to change formation and then you'll be out of that special formation. So as long as you don't hit the C button again or, or die, you'll stay in that formation. And this makes your options behave a lot like the Gradius games where they sort of follow your ship around and kind of tail you which I think could be useful in some situations, just so you've got a, you're cutting a larger swath of fire. Or, similar to the forward options, if you sort of fly up on the screen and then back down to where your options are right out in front of you, you can get super concentrated fire in kind of one small area. So if you need to take out a particular turret or attack a, a certain section of a boss or whatever that might be a way to be more strategic about that. Do players ever use that, Plasmo? Um, which one? The, the search, you mean? No, the shadow. Oh, the shadow? The one that's no, like no, no, trace. You don't, you don't use shadow. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so. Yeah. There's also uh, a, what's called the chain formation. Uh, it's... And according to what I found in the wiki, it says in a two-player game, the chain formation will have a 50% chance of activating whenever the conditions to activate any secret option formation are satisfied. Options in the chain formation will link the two-player ships while shooting upwards. Uh, oh, so you need two ships, right? Right. Yeah. The same thing so with I've the rolling option. It says uh, a player with the chain formation active will obtain the rolling formation when their partner game overs. Uh, so options in the rolling formation will rotate around the player ship while shooting upwards. So, similar to the rotating options in Gradius 3, then, in other words, they just rotate around your ship and all fire upwards. So it's just sort of a, a slightly different take on the forward option uh, that you can set, which seems like it's more of something that they threw in for fun, because yeah. I don't see any more utility in that than using the standard forward forward option. Yeah, it's not really useful in any way. Nope. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I think realistically, the homing option is probably the one that people go for. <laughs> yeah, homing and wide. Wide is um, also quite useful in a couple of places, but the other ones, rather, you would avoid. Yeah. I think... What's the one, what's it called again, where it like aims at them? That one can be okay-ish if you drop your homing and you can like pick it up on that tank section. Yeah, the oh, search, you mean. Search, yeah, sometimes I'll do that. If I drop my homing, I'm like, crap, I'll, I'll see if I can grab a search. Right. There's also um, actually a um, priority um, for those special option formations. So when you, for example, leave behind five small um, special uh, special, um, what's it called? Special weapon fragments, and also five small short items. Um, you have a priority that wide is triggered then, and not homing. So you have to yeah. um, sometimes watch out to not um, fulfill two of those um, conditions, because you Another. will, of course, only trigger ever one of the special um, formations then. Another very important note about those special formations is that they increase your rank a lot. So as fun as it would be to fly through the entire game using homing, uh, that's not a good idea because it'll jack your rank up really high. Yeah, but not all. Um, so wide is free, no rank increase at all. 
homing you get uh, frame rank increase indeed. Um, it, yes. it varies for the um, different um, formations, and I think we still have some research to do there. I don't think all the numbers are on the wiki. Not sure if you can look them up somewhere, but it's it's quite complex, actually. Hmm. As it must be with Greg. Yes, of course. As it must be. Yeah, one thing I also wanted to add, um, this whole option, um, these, these option setups and the mechanic as such, I think it's an underappreciated... Um, um, feature of Garega because when you, for example, think of R-Type, you of course think of the pod. When you think of Gradius, um, we've mentioned that before, you think of the um, option placement and um, how yeah, to cleverly yeah, yeah. Um, use them to shoot behind walls and stuff like that. And when you think of Garega, you usually think about rank, but that's not the special thing here, I would say, at least for me. It's just my opinion, of course. But um, these um, option setups um, just even not going for the special ones just going for the um, five regular option um, formations you have um, this just adds so much originality to the game and um, so much freedom um, to the player gives so much freedom to the player to express themselves it's just amazing so you can often when you look at the super players I can um, sometimes identify the super players just by looking at the option handling because it's so individual how people um, use those. So this is the special and the probably most innovative aspect of Battle Garaga, at least for me, because this this system in such detail um, was never seen before in an arcade shooting game. Yeah, definitely. The option, like controlling your options effectively is a real landmark of being a really good Garaga player. Like, even in stage one, when you watch those super plays, the way they work their options and the formations and the milks, it's like insane. And you can just, like uh, Plasma was saying, you can just tell in about three minutes of watching someone, you're like, oh, this is a super player because look at how well they're using their options and swapping their options. There's a real skill to that, yeah. Plasma was right in that with when you watch the super players, their skill can be pretty quickly assessed by just how effectively they work their options, where they're able to move their options around, even in stage one, to get certain setups, to milk things just right. It gets really insane how uh, strong your option control can take you in that game. And that was something I was working on a lot more was when I was going for the 1cc, like learning where to place your options on bosses, learning where to use them to position things, and of course the option setups to get homing correctly and stuff. Yeah, that's a huge aspect of the gameplay that a lot of people don't uh, see at first. Yeah, the level of control the game gives you with these options is just insane. So much fun. And when you see beginners play, you will usually never see them um, press the C button at all because you don't need it. At least you think you wouldn't need it because you can still just um, have it set to front and it's fine. Um, but this adds so much depth, really. Yeah, definitely. That's one of those interesting things. When I first started playing it and streaming it at the beginning of January, someone asked me, <laughs> someone asked me, do you ever change your options? And, you know, I was I was literally just kind of getting into the game and, and learning it. And so I hadn't really dug into that part of it yet. I was just sort of trying to get a feel for the flow in the first stage. And I, I don't do a lot with the options in terms of, I, I don't think I fully explored all of the option formations that are available to you from the get-go. I think primarily for me, when I'm going through stages, I keep it on spread. I switch to front when I want that narrow shot. Um, for example, when uh, uh, 
when you are, let's see, in stage two, when when you get past the, the little building or castle or whatever that's under all the foliage, and you've got that approach where you've got several of these small buildings and the tanks that sort of come in from the side and roll over oh, those yeah. buildings. You know, that's fun. One of the things you can do is destroy the tank while it's on the building to get a medal. And so if you switch to front, then you can be a little bit more specific about when you destroy a tank so that it's over a building so you're not damaging the other tanks and the other stuff too much to then miss that opportunity. You know, so I use that quite a bit, but I never really I never really put much time into using the tail option or the rotate didn't seem like it was going to be that useful because, again, you're not able to really aim with that. It's just sort of random. And then the trace, I mess with that a little bit um, because I had seen some That's players... That's a good one. That's I had, a good one. I had seen some players do some, as you say, Mark, swaggy things like um, flying up at the to the top corner of the screen or whatever on that first boss and using the trace option to sort of... Uh, shoot at the propeller to try and take it out individually on each side, you know, that kind of a thing. But I quickly found out that my skill level is probably a little low for that. <laughs> um, and uh, so I kind of just stuck to basic usage to, to try and do more survival play. But I think it's one of those things where if I were to continue playing this game in perpetuity, you know, I might start to explore some more of those kinds of things as I go along, just to kind of see how how that can open up the game further for me. And one, speaking on option skill, one skill that you kind of need to learn, at least as I was going through, is learning how many presses are between the different options, depending on the options that you want. So let's say you're in yeah. regular, and then you're like, oh, I need to go into trace, so you need to, I can't even remember the button presses. You just hit the button, you know, and memorize that. Then you're like, oh, I need to go into this option formation. So there's a whole skill set into being able to just transition effectively from option to option without having to, like, fumble through, like, oh, whoops, I accidentally pressed it too many times. Or yep. I meant to go for meant to go for front. I ended up with the rolling, and everyone loves rolling. You know, so it's always kind of uh, interesting to see that as well as having to memorize how do you switch from one to the other without wandering around through the options too much. Yeah, I, I, I kind of learned a little bit of that as I was going through. Like I said, since I didn't get too complicated, I know that it's two C button presses from from the default wide or the default spread to front, and then it's three more C button presses to get back to spread. So that was kind of my my back and forth with that is to to just go two to front and then three back to spread. And that was sort of the dance that I was doing as I played. One of the things that um, I have in the notes here is is a bit of a strategic thing that I think is probably probably something that higher skill level players will employ more so than myself. But when your ship blows up, it throws out shrapnel, and the shrapnel will do damage, and it will pass through enemies. And it also has the ability to cancel some bullets. So because of the game's rank system, one of the things that you you see in, in replays of the game online or that you hear in discussions, um, such as there's a lengthy discussion that had uh, 
Icarus, and I think you were on that call, Plasmo, am I right? Yep, Eaglet, Plasmo, and Icarus. Yeah. And so, you know, when you're watching that video with the play that's going on in there, and of course you see the strategic deaths where you you go into a boss and then you die almost immediately, uh, and you're right up against the boss so that when you get taken out, all that shrapnel is damaging the boss, and then that also gives them plenty of time to hopefully get back all their power-ups as they come back on screen and have a, a few iframes to kind of regroup. That's not a, a technique that I really learned how to use, but I can see where that would be very useful. Yeah, I love I love the uh, suicide shrapnel mechanic. The only bad part about it is when you go to play other games, you miss it. You're like, I was... I can't remember what it was. I was playing some kind of like toe plan game afterward and I was ramming my ship into stuff. I'm like, oh yeah, that doesn't work anymore. <laughs> I, I love that mechanic though, where you like blow up and kamikaze and the pieces damage stuff. There can be times where it sometimes can kind of mess up your routing if you accidentally die and blow something up before you wanted to. But other than that, I actually like the mechanic a lot. Yeah, it's like a different attack you can still use. Go all out and just sacrifice your life and... Uh use it strategically. Um, Yeah, that's that's a lot of fun. I like that as well. I like the concept, too. Like, you kamikaze into things. You know, more games need kamikazes. We need to make... We need to bring that in more games, because I love it. Is is Garega the first game to introduce that sort of shrapnel mechanic where your ship gets destroyed and the remnants of your ship will damage or destroy other enemies? That could very well be the case. I haven't seen it anywhere else mm. that I can think of. Yeah, I'm not aware of any that came prior to Garega, so I wasn't sure. It also looks awesome. We have to point that out when the parts of your ship explode and fly out there and blow other stuff up. It just looks awesome. Yeah, it doesn't feel awesome, <laughs> but it looks cool. Or when you plan it, when it's intentionally, then then it does feel awesome, actually, yeah. Yeah, That's you're like, true. yeah, take that. Yeah. Or it kind of feels awesome, too, because you get, if it's like some stupid popcorn enemy that takes you out, at least they die in the process. <laughs> you're like, okay, <laughs> right, well, you're at least dead. you're dead. Yeah, the good part is that um, <laughs> while you um, will destroy um, popcorn enemies with your shrapnel, you cannot destroy bosses with them, so you will not lose the big uh, score bonus from them just by killing it with your shrapnel. So there's a, um, there's a cap that will prevent bosses from dying from shrapnel. Right. Except the last one, right? Because that that can happen, right? Where the right or no. Nope. The the last the very last one where it's shooting you and then it hits you. Because I've seen it happened to me actually in a run where it killed me and I maybe it was my bullet that hit it though. Yeah, like, it should we be, bl- yeah, blow up I, at I the same time. I think it was time. Your, uh, your bullet. I think bosses really cannot die from your shrapnel, which is a good thing, I think, yeah. That would be cool if they took it off the last boss, but I understand. Yeah. It's an interesting mechanic nonetheless. Now, when you first start the game, you've got four four planes that are available to you. Uh, but of course, as most everyone knows, Garega has four unlockable uh, ships that you can use. And you can get that on an arcade cabinet by entering a, a code at the title screen, which is yeah. kind of a variant of the Konami code in a way. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, A, B, C, and then start. So that basically adds four additional ships that are from the Maho Daisakusen series. 
which which is a big deal because they're awesome. Yeah, well, then it kind of changes the way the game plays in some ways too, because they are definitely different than than the uh, the four included planes that the game has right off the bat. What do you think of Garega Plaz if it didn't have the Maho ships? Like, it would be a far less awesome game, wouldn't you agree? Or would you still play it a lot with the standard ships? Oh, I think it's definitely um, better the more ships you get, because, I mean, even the um, four Garega ships play very differently each. But of course, when you then have even more ships, you have even more variety. So just put in 20, 30 ships in there <laughs> would be cool. I like it. That's, that's the like, more the better. That's like Batrider. Yeah, that's exactly. like Batrider right there. <laughs> really crazy on this one, then. Um, yeah. But my favorite ships are all the unlockable ones. My favorite two ships are Moto and Gain. You know, without those two, I I would be a sad boy. So I'm glad they're in there. Yeah, they're really cool. And um, like generally speaking, I would say um, more powerful, higher scoring. Like just very generally, yep. maybe Chitta not so much, but the other three. Yes. Maybe maybe we need someone to make us uh, riding fighters Garega jet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree. I think that the ships add a lot. In fact, it made the game feel a heck of a lot easier when playing as Moto. Yeah, he's he's an easier way to get a one cc. I think. Yeah, the, the the hitbox around him, and that was the biggest thing that I had with this, aside from dealing with rank, was a hitbox, which I, I was playing with the Korean version. And it translated on my phone to Judgment Box, which right. <laughs> I, I like a lot better. <laughs> it, and really aptly fits this game. I, I, I think that you're doing yourself a disservice, especially since, as far as I can tell, there's no penalty for selecting a smaller hitbox and a faster plane by pressing A, B, and C. Especially when using it for Moto. Because he just he flies across the screen like a rubber band and it just really makes getting out of those tough situations especially when you can't see a bullet and then you see it right at the last second and get moving maneuvering and there did anybody try and do it with the actual ships i know that this the golden snail seems to be a pretty favorite oh yeah we should explain that the the button selections and how that changes how your ships act right so with with the standard button, you get the standard ship, you know, that's lame. And then the C button, that's a popular one because you get the faster ship and smaller hitbox. No, no, sorry. You get the smaller hitbox. And then if you hit all three buttons, A, B, C, you get faster and smaller hitbox. With a lot of ships, that's really great. Some of them, they can get kind of scary, like Gain and Moto, where they're so fast. That's all, it's like, you got to be a real, you know, got to be a real G to play those ships. But right. uh, what do you think, Plaz? Um, yeah, I think so too. Uh, the, you you want to have increased speed, definitely. Um, maybe not with Miyamoto, but with all the other ones. And the smaller hitbox, you sometimes want to have, of course, to dodge bullets um, more easily. Um, but at other times, it could be a little bit um, of an issue. For example, when you're collecting a lot of medals and your hitbox is smaller, yeah. it's more difficult to pick them up. And you need those medals to score in order to survive, because score means more extra lives. So this is kind of a mixed bag, actually. Um, when you go for the smaller hitbox, you definitely have to be good at picking up medals. Then it's um, then it's fine. But it, it can make some situations more difficult. But increased speed yeah. usually is only good. 
Do you think that was intentional on Yagawa's part, making because the like you're saying, I've noticed this too. Like the metals, the metals hit boxes or collection boxes, whatever you want to call them, are not that big, and so many times, like there's a lot of setups where it's hard to get them if you have a small hit box. Do you think Yagawa is doing that on purpose to be mean, or do you think it's just kind of a interesting accident where? I think the whole game is just be one some happy benefit. accident. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Turned all because well that would obviously be very easily fixed if he just made the collection boxes or whatever you call it on the metals bigger, but he didn't. So they, you have that trade-off, like Plaza's saying. Yeah. So I mean, you know, in general, you know, your your A button or your shot button is kind of your default configuration, and that's I think that's one of those things where you go into the game the first time if you don't know any better, you just hit the fire button. Because that's what you do when you select a ship in another game. But you're doing yourself probably a disservice by doing that because you're going to be slower and you're going to have a larger hitbox. B, you know, selecting with B gives you more speed. Selecting with C gives you smaller hitbox. And the interesting thing is A, B, C together does the increased speed and smaller hitbox. But you also get mm -hmm. that same selection if you just time out the yep. selection screen. Which I thought was kind of a nice... It is nice because sometimes it's hard to hit all three at once. Like I have trouble with that, and so I do I'll too. often just let it time out so I can make sure I get it. Like especially if you're doing it a continue, like I know, you know, whatever. Like really skilled players won't ever continue, but let's say you are continuing. Um, yeah, hitting that ABC is a trickier input than it. So with that, I always just let it time out so I get the ship that I need. Yeah, it's right. not easy to do, and actually some. Um cabinets okay cabinets and japanese arcades um have a dedicated button to press abc at the same time so <laughs> the players don't have oh. to um try to press abc and then lose their money because they got the wrong ship type <laughs> it's kind of mean. yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's in the port as well right i think you're right mark if i went back through the menu configuration i think i think you're right uh, the port yeah, definitely yeah. has several things, but it's interesting to think about it, allowing it to time out, uh, even from the very original arcade version, and doing that sort of giving you a leg up, almost like like Yagawa or the team saying, "You might need this little extra help." <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of a fun little a fun little. Uh, extra you know thing in there that they kind of give you well they also increase your rank i mean it's not by much at all it's very very small but it's you're waiting for that timer to shoot down your rank is increasing yeah that's too oh, that's funny wanted oh, to I say didn't that, realize that, that. That, that's kind of funny but i don't think it's um, really it's it doesn't really anything, matter but though, it's right? still funny to think about it yeah. that there's yeah, still yeah, some yeah, kind because, of um, penalty for this yeah because like i'm sure it'll be if you for instance, do your suicides in stage one, it'll be wiped out anyway, right? Oh, yeah. Right. Oh, sure. It's like point one or point two at most. <laughs> yeah. It is funny, though. Yeah. But, you know, it, well, anyway, the the default craft that you get, uh, you know, the four craft, you've got the, the G-1010 fighter, which A-type is called the silver sword, B-type yeah. is called the cannonball... C type is called the Masamune, and uh, ABC type is called the Shatterstar. And it basically, its main shot forwards, uh, shoots forward. It's sort of a three way shot at level three. 
Um, it has standard bullets that shoot out of its options, and then its special weapon is a napalm. According to the wiki, is a napalm cone that is aimed in the direction opposite the ship's movement, which is an interesting, uh, interesting way to do it. Then you've got the G-130 air-to-ground interceptor. A-type is called the grasshopper. B-type is the reinforcer. C-type is the DGR October. And then the ABC type is a diving fox. And it, again, has forward shot, uh, but at level four, bullets will penetrate. So you get that pierce uh, action going on. The option shot is standard bullets. And then the special weapon is a chain gun uh, that kind of fires bullets in a narrow cone, I guess it says, in front of the ship. And then spent shell casings are also discharged at oblique angles behind the ship. And I I didn't put enough time into this one to determine, but I wonder if those shell casings also do damage, similarly to the shrapnel. They actually do more damage than the shrapnel. The shrapnel is very short burst and um, just very ineffective bomb overall. And um, what's important is... Uh, what. What is behind you gets much more damage output. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Then you've got the G-1026 uh, light carrier-based aircraft. A-type is called the Flying Baron. B-type is the Stormy Omen. C-type is a Red Impulse. And then ABC-type is Black Zeppelin. Again, it's a forward shot. Becomes three-way at level three and a four-way at level five. Standard bullets on the options. And then the special weapon is uh, homing missiles. And it sort of shoots out a barrage of homing missiles. I quite liked that special weapon on this ship. I can see how it might be a little bit chaotic and haphazard to use. A, because there's already, in many cases, a lot of bullets on screen and a lot happening. So you're just making things even more chaotic. Uh, And also... Aiming it or, you know, using it more intentionally might be a little bit more difficult, but it seems like that might be kind of fun to, to mess with. Yeah, these homing missiles in particular, the, the, the ones of the Flying Baron, they are very weak on the one hand and they um, explode instantly, so they almost do no damage at all. And then their behavior, those homing missiles are <laughs> quite stupid. They hit everything but not the stuff you want them to hit so it's quite painful Uh, to actually um make them hit anything at all it's a very difficult bomb to use and very ineffective i see okay uh and then you also have the g913 heavy carrier based torpedo bomber a type is known as wild snail b type is the iron mackerel c type is rust champion and abc type which i think is the the most well-known is the Golden Bat. Oh, yeah. It's got a forward shot that becomes a three-way at level three and a four-way at level five, but its bullets are penetrating or piercing at all all levels. So right away, that definitely makes it a little bit more useful, I think. Yeah, that's the big one. So the Flying Baron and the Grasshopper are kind of weak, but the, the Wild Snail is the, the big one here. Yeah. It's a good ship for beginners as well. So we've talked about the, the, the Miyamoto character, and we will um, again talk about it soon. Um, so I would recommend for beginners the Miyamoto or Wild Snail. Those are the good ones, I would say. 
Yeah. The right. golden bat does insane amount of insane amounts of damage with his uh, regular shot. He'll eat through enemies like they're, you know, Christmas pudding. One thing that I do want to say, too, is just you le- reading through that list. Yugawa has a real talent for giving awesome names to all his ships. I mean, yeah, he totally. should uh, take a thing out of his book. All those ship names are... Oh, sorry. This is a kid's show. Uh, are really awesome. So uh, <laughs> I-, I love all the naming conventions of all the ships. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is pretty creative. And it-, it shows that, you know, they were really, really thoughtful in how they how they went about making these different designs. But yeah, the this ship also has uh, twin flamethrowers that are its uh, bomb or special weapon, uh, and they lock on to nearby targets. This is one that I think you probably have to be fairly mindful about how and where to use that um, so that you can make sure that you're targeting the right enemy or the right thing because of that sort of lock-on or homing feature of the special weapon. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of the flamethrowers just because the aesthetics and also they, they feel very powerful but uh, I think a lot of people aren't too big fans of them. What do you think, Plaz? Are you a fan of the flamethrowers? Oh, yes. Wild Snail yeah, they're awesome, definitely my they? favorite of the four <laughs> correct ships. Yeah. Yes. And then, of course, we have the unlockables. So... Uh, from the Maho Daisakusen games, you have got Gain the Warrior. And I think it, the information in the wiki I have here is the what's I, what I've got in parentheses in the notes is Valhalizer. I'm assuming that's the name of his ship. Yes, it is. Okay. So he has a forward shot that becomes three-way at level four. Um, his option is large swords that function as penetrating bullets, which I love. And his special weapon is a magic circle that deals area of effect damage in front of the ship. And this functions as a traditional bomb type of, of special weapon that you get in what you would think of as most classic shmups, like a Raiden or a Same 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 or something like that. The thing that I like about Gain's bomb and the thing that drew me to him is the fact that it lasts when you have a full bomb stock or a full bomb icon to use, it lasts for a very long period of time. And so not only can you use it for damaging bosses and things like that, but it also does a pretty good job of blocking enemy projectiles for a short period of time and also damaging ground targets and sort of carrying that forward. So I took to gain pretty quickly, and that's what I focused on most of my play throughout January. And we also can't uh, we also can't miss the fact that his bombs are absurdly good scoring tools. Like uh, he yes. can do some real damage and uh, do some really cool tricks with those bombs on a scoring aspect, especially in stage two, the birds and all that. Gain yes. gets all of them points from those birds. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the things I wanted to make sure that we mentioned was someone told me about this, and I was not aware of this scoring trick, but in, in stage two, uh, you start out over the water, and once you get up to land, there's a building, like a castle or whatever, that's sort of on the left side, and it's kind of covered in foliage or whatever, but if you bomb sort of toward the upper part of that of that building, you'll start releasing all these pink birds, 
Uh, someone called them flamingos. I don't know what they actually are, but you can actually shoot the birds or bomb the birds and earn points, like tick points, from doing that. And so what you do is you release a bomb toward the top of the building, and then as that's cycling through and the birds are coming out, you're getting points for that. Well, then when that runs out, you drop another one toward the top of the screen so that as you're going along and all these birds are coming out, you know, they're, you're getting points off of them and you're milking them for all these points. And if you do it right, you can get up to up to and above that million point, that first one million to get yourself an early extend in the game. I think if you're really good with gain, you can get two extends from that, right, Plaz? Even three, uh, if you're oh, really wow. lucky. Wow! Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it's quite interesting. Gain is the one who really works those birds. Like, I play Moto. Eh, the birds don't do Moto too much of a favor, but um, Gain can really maximize those birds. Yeah, scoring varies greatly between all the eight characters. And the reason why Gain is so good is um, he can drop more than one bomb on screen, and that's uh, unique. Yeah, he can stack The them. other characters cannot do that. Yeah, yeah. And also, um, talking about the birds, um, the ending sequence actually changes when you activate the birds. Um, at the end, after the last boss, you see your ship um, flying through the blue sky. And yes. when you activate the birds, you see the birds flying there. Oh, that's awesome. That's like some Super Metroid stuff. Yeah, as I mentioned on uh, Discord earlier, I, man- I finally managed to get my Super Easy clear uh, earlier this morning. And- Congrats. And my ending... I got the birds because I activated them on on stage two, so that was that was cool to see. You know, that's a fun little element that they put in there. It's just more than just the birds, right? There are a couple of other areas where you can increase your score. Not having to do with flamingos, of course. I think there's one in stage five, if I remember correctly. Well, there are a lot of areas that you can bomb uh, either buildings or. Types. You know, different structures within the game in order to reveal metals. Rails. Uh, but yeah, I, I do think there are other other portions or other places where you can bomb to get additional score. A big one is the opening of stage three, that very opening section there. If you bomb the floor, there's like piles of metals in there. So uh, yes. I didn't know that when I first played the game. I saw someone doing like, whoa. <laughs> so yeah, uh, keep an eye out for the piles of metals in the opening of stage three. Right. Or or later in stage three, there's all of those what look like giant fuel tanks or whatever. And if you bomb those, then those have metals in them. Yeah. So all kinds of stuff like that. So there's also Chitta, the magician, and her ship, I believe, is called Gundalf. And again, it's a, it's a forward shot, becomes three-way at level three. Her options are special bullets with homing properties. And then her special weapon is, it says, a genie in a bottle that hits an area in front of the ship. I never really used Chitta because most people I think that I've talked to or that I've heard talk about Garega have kind of said that she is not a good character to use. Low tier. Yeah, yeah. she's really bad. She's charming, but not very good. Yeah, very weak shot, weak bomb. Bomb takes ages to um, even activate. I mean, if you press B uh, three seconds later, you have the bomb. <laughs> it's very weak as well. Wow. It doesn't last yeah. very long. So um, she's probably interesting to score with because uh, the score ceiling also is um, a little bit lower than with the others. 
but very very difficult to use for advanced players oh. only, I would say. Okay. And according to the wiki, uh, her options are the enemy Goblin Imp Mages from Maho Daisakusen, and uh, her special weapon is actually the same bomb that she had in Shupu Maho Daisakusen. Uh, then you also have Miyamoto, uh, the Samurai Dragon, and his is a narrow forward shot, and it becomes wider at level 4. Uh, special bullets explode on impact, giving an area of effect damage. And then his special weapon is, uh, it says, sword slashes that propel wind blades in a wide cone in front of the ship. So yeah, I, I noticed this, uh, I think when I was watching your uh, 1cc run, Mark, that his his special weapon is very far away from a traditional bomb type of effect, but it still has a very wide area of effect, even if that is a little bit weaker in its um, in its approach. Yeah, but his uh, special weapon is actually pretty interesting because it doesn't do nearly as much damage as some of the other ones out there. The nice thing, though, is it gives you a big pile of invulnerability, which can... So it's kind of almost like a cave bomb in that, where you can, like, if you're stuck on screen and there's a bunch of tanks, you can uh, hit the bomb and kind of work your way out of it. The interesting thing about it, though, which I found out the hard way on Blackheart, is you don't get your invulnerability right away, like in a cave game. Instead, you've got to wait for him to go into his spin animation. So if you're playing Moto and you're wondering, why am I dying in my bomb? It's because you're actually not invulnerable until he starts spinning. Oh, you're, you're, gonna, even then you're not... Even then, you're not invulnerable. Um, I think you have very, very few iframes. Um, when you activate the bomb, it's like just a couple of frames, and from then on, you you can still be hit. The good thing is, though, that um, the bomb will continually uh, continuously cancel the bullets in front of you, so you will be a little bit safe. But you're actually not invincible um, for the duration That's of nice. the bomb. Yeah, yeah, I should clarify that. You're not actually truly invincible. That yeah. would be really cool because you could like fly through the. Yeah, exactly. But you would cancel but, just everything inside. Yeah, but the then the nice thing about it though is, let's say you know on the Vulcan attack on Blackheart, you're stuck in that in a weird position. Um, what you can do is you can hit his bomb. Make sure you wait for him to start spinning though, and then you can fly out of the Vulcan attack, which I did, and uh, helped me a lot on Blackheart too. Yeah, but, uh, right. There's a little note on that, but yeah, it's a, unfortunately it doesn't do a ton of damage, but it does have a nice huge area of coverage, and it can cancel a lot of bullets. So it is a good it is a good bomb. Oh, it's definitely a good bomb. Yeah, and I think the the best part probably for beginners is that you can use it traditionally as a um, as a panic bomb because most yeah. of the other ships bombs they don't work on button press. You have to wait a few frames um, before they activate. But for Miyamoto, it's instant activation, so that's that's good. Yeah, I, fa I found that out with Gain, that there is a little bit of a delay between right. hitting the button and getting the bomb. So I tried to learn how not to panic bomb in the game mm. and use them more strategically. Or you have to panic uh. much sooner. you got to get scared faster. <laughs> <laughs> right. Scared right away. Like, oh crap, hit the bomb. <laughs> And according to the wiki, Miyamoto's options are the ninjas from his F subweapon in uh, Maho Daisakusen, but the bullets they shoot are actually from the W subweapon in the same game. So it's sort of a mixture there. And then his special weapon is his bomb from Shipu Maho Daisakusen. And then the final, the final craft that you have is 
Bornum the Necromancer, flying the Golgodian, I believe. S similarly to the others, his uh, forward shot becomes a three-way at level three and a five-way at level five. His option shot is a special wide bullet, and then his special uh, weapon is a... He summons a demon to attack an area in front of the ship. This also works similarly to a traditional bomb, which I found out when I was when I was uh, playing around with him earlier, and probably, I would say, maybe the closest to a traditional bomb style, but it also has additional area of effect with a sort of four-way fl flames or whatever that comes out of the area of effect from the bomb. And his options and bullets that he shoots are his W sub-weapon from Maho Daisakusen, and then his special weapon is his bomb from Shippu Maho Daisakusen. So, what types does everyone like to use the best? I like to play C-Moto, but in the future I might try to play ABC-Moto more and see if I can get my hands around that increased movement speed because it is pretty wild if you can get it to go. If you can macro around stuff you're not really able to with other ships, and so I'm a big fan of him. He's, And I also am going to start playing some ABC Gain, too. I, those are my two favorite ships. Mm, cool. I have played with Gain and Bornem, I think. Well, Gain, Bornem, and Wild Snail, I think I've used most in the past. But I really want to give the weaker ships a try because the whole game changes and you have to pay much more attention to um, certain enemies that you cannot quill, uh, kill that quickly. So I want to try Grasshopper and Flying Baron in the future. I think those would be interesting. Hmm. What about you, Addicted? I started off with the Flying Baron, which <laughs> didn't work out so well for me. I quickly got frustrated with it and moved on to the Wild Snail or the Golden Snail. However, I start out with Moto and I end up playing the ABC Moto because it reminds me so much of Stage 4 in Mushi when you're constantly trying to dodge stuff left and right and get in there. It, it, I don't know, there's just something about having the feeling of constantly zipping around the screen that really appeals to me. Hmm. And ABC Moto d definitely does that. So I'll continue playing with ABC Moto and probably start up a game with a Golden Snail. Try and get some more practice in with that. Nice. Yeah, I I think my first couple of credits were with the... Uh, or my first credit, when I fired it up at the beginning of the month of January, was the Silver Sword. Just default ship, default type. And I quickly found out that that does not move fast enough for me. And I was, I was getting knocked down pretty quickly. So once I kind of looked up the, the different uh, styles or what have you... Then I started to experiment a little bit more. So then I tried the uh, ABC type of the first ship, and then I also messed around with the Golden Bat a little bit. Uh, but ultimately, I settled on on C type gain. I felt like ABC type might have been just a hair too fast for me, and I I think gain is just a little bit faster, or a, you know, a, a decent amount faster than the the default planes anyway. So I felt like his speed was already pretty decent right up front, but then I, I went with C-Type to get that smaller hitbox. Uh, speaking of which, I guess just just a quick note. Uh, definitely, if you if you haven't gone there already, 
go to the shmups.wiki page and search for Balgarega. There's actually a screenshot on the page there showing the hitbox sizes, and they're not too much different, but I think they're just different enough, uh, or, you know, there's just enough difference between the hitbox sizes between the A and B and then the C or ABC types that, you know, it makes a difference. Here, I thought you were going to tell us to go to Galloping Ghost and play the arcade version. (laughs) (laughs) Right. All right, let's move on to the power-ups and items. Your shot power-up has two levels, small and large. The small power-ups increase the power level as multiple items are collected after the first power-up level. Full power-up items increase the shot power by one full level, up to a maximum of five levels. And <clears throat> I'm going to go with Mark's suggestion on here. You want to, by and large, avoid getting the smaller power-up levels and go for the larger power-up levels, as getting the smaller power-up levels will keep increasing your link rank and making the game a lot harder. Yeah, except for the first one. If you grab the first small power-up item when you start, you'll immediately jump up to level two. And so I think, generally speaking, that's probably okay to do because you can immediately get that boost in in shot power, but then, uh, you know, not have to wait for a large power item to do it. And similar to shot power-ups, we also have weapon or bomb fragments that appear as small and large. The small weapon fragments give the ship a partial weapon bomb usage, and collecting 40 of these awards a large full weapon usage. Power ships can stock four full weapon uses and 40 small weapon fragments for a total of five full weapon bomb uses. And believe me, with everything out there, you're going to need them. (laughs) Moving on to options. Each option will grant a player one ship option up to a maximum of four. The medals are strictly a point-based item. Medal value increases as the player collects them with some time in between spawning the medals. The medal value starts at 100 points and increments by 100 points up to 1,000 points and then by 1,000 points up to the maximum value of 10K. The medal chain can be maintained as long as there's at least one high value medal is collected before it falls off the screen. If the last high value medal falls off the screen, the value resets back to 100 points. Some background scenery can be destroyed with special bombs to reveal menus, such as we talked about on the beginning of Stage 3. Maybe we should start calling them Metal Bunkers. (laughs) The drop order, which is taken from the shmups.wiki page, popcorn enemies may drop items when destroyed. Under normal circumstances, every fifth enemy destroyed will drop an item. However, in Stage 3, 5, and 6, grounded popcorn enemies appear which are guaranteed to drop items. When an enemy drops an item, the item dropped is determined according to a specific order governed by the following table. And the first one is, see, and those are small. Looks like a power-up item there. Yep. And the second one is a very, is it a 10K metal? Well, it's just a metal. Metal, okay. Followed by another small power-up. Followed by another metal, and then followed by a bomb fragment. No, an option. Uh, it's an, oh, that's an option. I'm sorry. Right. And it, it sort of repeats that sequence uh, three more times. And then and then the final sequence is the same, except for 
the last item in the sequence, instead of being an option, will be the large power-up item. And then it starts that whole thing over again, where it's small power-up, metal, small power-up, metal, option. And so it kind of repeats that pattern. And so now we are moving on to rank. And I think that if there are two things that were asked what define Garega, rank and options would be my answer. If, if you take away a rank entirely like you have in super easy mode, it, it sort of takes all the teeth out of the game. Yeah, the rank's a big deal. Well, I wouldn't say all the teeth, but it certainly makes it a lot more manageable. Well, it's so much, in fact, that according to Digital Press, a lot of players would pull the plug on the machine and then start or re- recycle the power on the machine because it instantly resets the rank back down to the easiest level. Oh. So there, there's an arcade trick. If you ever see somebody pull <laughs> the plug on a Garega machine, they're just doing it so they can help themselves out. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I've heard about that, though. Alright, so let's go into rank here. The game features an adjustable difficulty system rank. I would love to see like, like an actual name for this given on here. Uh, and I don't want to call it gank or something. <laughs> Gregor <Gregory. laughs> gank. It's, it's, the gank system. It's the uh, Yagawa punishment vector. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, as we talked about, the game features an adjustable difficulty system commonly called rank, that will increase difficulty based upon the actions of the player. As rank increases, more popcorn enemies spawn, enemies gain more health, enemies shoot more frequently, enemy bullets travel faster, and items fall off the screen faster. <clears throat> Basically everything to make the game harder for the player to continue and for the, the operator to earn more money. Uncontrolled increase of the game's rank can quickly turn into a man- manic shooter, so here's the things in the standard arcade mode that will increase rank. Time. Rank increases by a set value every frame. The value is primarily determined by the player's auto-fire rate, which should be set to 10, according to Mark. Anything higher than that, you're going to get penalized for it. Anything lower than that, you're going to do yourself a disservice. Yeah, and I think yeah. I think a trick is when you get to Blackheart 2, right, Plasma? That's when you just let it fly and you bring that auto fire rate up real high yeah you don't really need it before that i think i would probably recommend to make it just a little bit um higher the frequency from the get-go even but um definitely not go for 20 or 30 um before the last stage yeah it's interesting how the auto fire works because depending on how you're routing the game actually how you're gonna set your auto fire is gonna change so if you're uh, a a very talented player, let's say, and you're wanting to do lots of metal tricks and scoring tricks and you're going to be suiciding all the time, then you might set your auto fire rate up a little higher to make that happen. If you're trying to squeak out a 1cc and kind of abuse the rank as much as possible or kind of fly under the rank, I was finding that 10 was kind of the the nice sweet spot where you're not punished for it. Yeah, 10, 10, 12, I think are both absolutely fine to use. Yeah. 10 or 12, I can't remember which one it was, but one of them, you can set it up, maybe it is 12, you can set it up just a little bit and it doesn't actually punish you for it. Right. There's no there's no rank penalty for going to 10, I believe, because 8 is the default. It yes, hurts. yes, yeah, so 8's the uh, default. But then 10... No rank penalty. But then with 10, with 10 there's no punishment or no penalty for, for setting it to that. 12 is where it starts to creep up a little bit, I think. That's right, okay, yeah. 
So I went with 10. Yeah, that's that's what I was kind of going with. Because uh, if you don't have good rank management skills, uh, 12 can start to creep up on you a little bit. Yeah, it also depends on your ship. So for some right, ships, right. you definitely want to have a higher autofire frequency just because the um, shot maybe is too weak on a lower frequency. Yeah, but if you're yeah. talking about, for example, Miyamoto, of course, um, the options are so powerful. You don't really need anything higher yes, than 10 or 12. Yes. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, like, 10 is, 10 is like enough. Silver, what is it, Silver Sword? You probably would want to boost that up a little right. bit. Right, at least 15, even early game. Yeah, that it's interesting because different ships get punished for auto-fire differently. Like uh, Gain and uh, Moto and all those tend to get punished. Yeah, there, a bit. Are, there are two aspects to it. So you do get um, a, flame, a frame rank increase just from um, setting up the auto-fire to a higher frequency, and this will add up um, more rank per frame for the duration of the whole game. It's quite significant. And um, the other penalty is that um, with every bullet you shoot, you also get um, higher rank. Yep. So yep. when you have, um, for example, um, let's take Miyamoto's options again. They um, are quite bad for rank when you shoot them even once. And then um, the more you shoot them, of course, with a higher frequency, the worse it gets for rank. So you have the, the frame rank increase on the one hand and then additionally um, every time you shoot. Yeah, so quite yeah I think Gain's swords are like that too, right? Aren't they just like massive rank piles, his swords? Yeah, with Gain's swords, it's not that bad. Because on the one hand, of course, you're right. It's it's quite bad. But um, for the swords, only one sword um, can be on the screen at the at one time. Right. So right. Um, Because there's a sprite limit for the swords. So it's not that bad. If you just look at the table, it's just a huge number for rank. But in yes. actuality, <laughs> it's not that bad. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, it's not only time and shots that can add to rank. We also have items where rank increases for each item collected with the value determined by the item. Yep, I really struggled with this when I was first playing Garega where I was picking up all the items. I was like, yeah. And then uh, <laughs> my rank was getting crazy high and I didn't understand what was going on. That, that was a habit I actually had to break where... A meta of Grega is not only picking up things, it's also dodging items you don't want. You know, it's kind of funny, especially in the uh, blimp stage or the sky stage. I can't, I don't know the name of it. Stage, uh, I think it's stage five, right? Stage five, right? Yes, with the clouds yes. and the lightning. Like, the game really cool. teases you with all those fun items on there, but the, the trick there is you're supposed to kind of weave around them to get the medals, but you don't want to pick up the extra uh, shot power ups and stuff. Yeah, they sort of do that to you in stage three, too, where you're, you're going through the factory and. Also, and there's a little area that's like, here's all these yeah, shiny yeah. things. Yeah, that was definitely a habit to break. This game plays with expectations one way or another. At first, I started playing like a bullet hell type game, and that quickly broke that habit. And then I started playing it akin to more of an older style, such as R-Type or even as close to the Strikers. And I was trying to pick up stuff just as you were, Mark. And uh, it took me a while to break that habit. Yeah, and that's one of the things that, you know, when I switched from playing arcade to super easy, people on my streams were like, well, how come you're not getting every item? There's no rank penalty for it. Yeah, but when I'm playing this game, I don't want to get into the habit of grabbing all the stuff. I still want to try to play it like like I can't, you know? It's sort of like the, uh, the power-up equivalent to the floor is lava, 
you know, where where uh, you want to avoid everything that you don't absolutely have to grab, except for the weapon fragments. I kind of I kind of go uh, go all out for grabbing those because I I tend to use the special weapon, uh, you know, a decent amount. But yeah, I, you know, I was trying to still play it in that manner where I was not grabbing that stuff because when I go back to playing either premium or arcade, I want to make sure that I'm already, I've already developed that good habit, so to speak. Yeah. And speaking of rank, uh, another really good piece of advice for people picking up Grega, which I struggled with is not grabbing all your options and using a bunch of options in the beginning, because it feels really awesome at first when you're in stage two and you got all four swords going and you're just mowing everyone down and you feel (laughs) very powerful. But it turns out you're jacking up your rank a bunch. And so what I ended up doing is uh, you kind of need to route out when you pick up your options and how many you need to use per stage. And that's really going to help you with your rank management. That's one thing that I will say I really enjoyed that you picked up upon, Mark, and us does, is that when you're dealing with routing in this game, it is very organic. It's not like, let me look up a super play. It's sort of like, I can sort of get how this is supposed to go. I'm supposed to go here. I'm then I go over here. Do this. You, you pick upon it. You get a little bit better each time. It's not where I, I had to look at a super play or a YouTube video in order to gain a better understanding. Right, and Greg is one of the one of the few games where, like, I had to really sit down and start crunching numbers on the wiki table, figuring out okay, if I do this here, I can reduce the rank here and. Uh, it is fun in that way. You can kind of build your own routes in a little bit easier manner than something like Dodonpachi, where if you don't pick up the bees, everyone looks at you like you're insane. So I, I do I do <laughs> like that about Grego a lot. Uh, we also have special weapons that increase the rank. It increases by a set value every time the player deploys their special weapon. And <clears throat> I sort of like the way that this was done in super easy where the special weapons act to serve as an auto bomb <clears throat> that was neat but by and large i didn't find myself using special like the outside of what where you would bomb for the flamingos and that type of stuff i didn't find myself having to deal with so much rank as increased by using the special weapons they weren't as big a worry to me as some of the other stuff did anyone else experience this, or was it just me? Yeah, I don't um, think it's that bad um, for the special weapons. Um, you're so, I mean, you're you're basically you're... supposed to get them all the time, right? Like, I don't know if I... Do people sometimes avoid those? Or I, I always figured you kind of just want special weapons always. Yeah, I mean, you need it in order to survive, so it's not that bad. And they get you lots of points, too, for, in different scenarios. It's very different than what you get on your standard bullet hell or uh, game where it's asking you to, if you bombed, you failed, or you absolutely have to get out of it in order to save your run. Oh yeah, it's it's a complete difference from some from Cave, for instance, where you know you're kind of a loser if you bomb, and in Greg, it's like no, you need to bomb. It's you're cool if you bomb, but in Dodonpachi, the game punishes you heavily for bombing, basically. And I remember I wa- I read this old uh, interview with, I don't know who which super player it was, but it was a Dodonpachi super player. This was on uh, Shmuplations, by the way. And they were kind of talking about, like, yeah, real men don't bomb, and maybe you should, like, take the bomb button out of the, your cabinet or something, you know? It's, like, totally, <laughs> totally different mentality than uh, something like Grego, where bombing's so critical to the way the game works. 
Yeah, remind me a little bit of Crimson Clover of Always Be Breaking. Right. And that's what I like about the naming convention special weapon, because then you don't think it's like the classic bomb you don't want to use only in panic situations, but use it as a weapon aggressively um, to get more score, to um, get the enemies um, just as with your regular shot. So I, I, I like calling it special weapon. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it reminds me a little bit of the way that uh, Belt Scrollers deal with this, right? You're going to be giving up a little bit of your life within rank by activating a special weapon, but it's not going to be too bad. And ironically, sometimes you can lower your rank with it, like a gain on the birds, where you you boost your rank by dropping all your bombs, but then you get the points and suicide, and you actually end up dropping your rank. So it's pretty wild how if with your routing and strategy... Sometimes you need to bomb to reduce your rank in a sort of indirect way. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest differences when you compare um, Battlegrounds rank system to other uh, games rank systems. So that um, in Garega you 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 have full control over the rank. So the player has much more control to drive the rank um, high or to lower it again. Um, if you're playing well, of course, if you're not playing for survival purely because then you don't have that um, sort of control, but you can potentially reach that sort of control. And in other games, you just um, die, and it's it's not a good thing, even though uh, rank is then dropping down. So yeah, the, the, yeah. the aspect of control is really what, um, for me at least, um, makes it different to other systems. Yeah, it's very different. That's a great point. For instance, uh, in Dodonpachi DOJ, whatever, how you pronounce the Japanese version, um, in that game, there, it has a rank system like Garega, and you can kind of compare it, but the difference is that you don't manipulate that rank system for scoring whatsoever, because it's basically, if you die, you you just lost your points. There's no sort of, where in Garega you die, but then, then you're actually manipulating rank right. for further scoring in the future. Whereas in Dodonpachi, uh, DOJ, if you die, the rank's like, hey, you suck, sorry, we'll, we'll drop the rank down. But there is no sort of like high level manipulation or anything. It's just basically, can you stay on the treadmill while it gets faster and faster and faster? So, yeah, you just have to take the rank increase basically. And in Garaka yes, and yes. In other Yagawa's games, you can decide whether you want to take the rank increase and um, what to do with it. Maybe use it to your advantage and then cash in and get low rank again, uh, as you said with the birds and um, suiciding again. So it all depends really. You have much more control and freedom of it. Yeah, we could talk endlessly about Garego rank. It's it's quite it's quite the package. That's why it's so famous, I think, because it's very interesting how it can affect the player's experience. Yeah. Yeah, it's totally unlike something anything else you play. It doesn't play like a bullet hell, but it doesn't play like a standard STG either. It's its own thing, which is in, in a field of everyone trying to do something and and where everything feels like it's been done, it's something different, and that's what I think draws everyone to it. <clears throat> so, losing, a, as we spoke about earlier, losing a life will decrease the rank. The fewer lives a player has when they die, the more rank is decreased. Thus, the game rewards a player who doesn't stock up on too many lives at a time by more drastically reducing its difficulty. And usually you want to try and have about one life in reserve, or to keep the rank at a pretty good pace. Do you concur with that, Mark? Yeah, and I would say it's really interesting, again, how this can affect your routing and stuff and how you can play with this a little bit. Because, for instance, I was under the false impression for a long time 
that there's just kind of like this static punishing factor that kicks in as soon as you get three extends. I thought the game would just like throw rank at you once you did that. But the way it actually works, like you're saying, is that it just decreases your rank less when you die if you have more extends in reserve. So with that difference, you actually can kind of play with it a little bit where in the early game, you can get you can play risky, right? And maybe have no extends or just like one extend. And as soon as you get it, suicide it to get maximum amount of rank uh, de decrease. But then the further you get, like uh, the cloud stage, for instance, this is where you start saying, OK, now let's start stocking up on extends now. So in that from that stage, I stopped suiciding and started stocking up on them. So that, that's why the rank graph in the port is also so useful, because it can really help you kind of plan out what you're going to do with your rank. And you can manipulate this, like Plasma was saying, like in Grega, you can always be manipulating and playing with your rank a little bit. This is a huge factor to keep in mind, is how much you want to suicide. But generally speaking, like uh, Addicted saying, you want to have one in reserve, that way when you die, you don't game over, but you're getting the maximum amount of rank decrease when you die. Yeah, I think two lives is also fine still, but then um, don't hoard more lives. Um, yeah, that's probably not a good thing. So always have um, at the maximum two lives in stock. And before you would get the third one, um, try to um, suicide one down. So there's no loss. Yeah, and this is where we were talking earlier about like uh, the shrapnel mechanic. This is cool when, when you can like, uh, basically you're about to get an extend. You can look up in your... Uh, high score bar and you see okay I'm about to get an extend here so you you fly into the boss shrapnel him and then you get your extend and then you shoot them and kill them that's always a really cool sequence if you can pull that off yeah, that's that's one of those things that I've had a difficult time wrapping my head around and I'm still not quite there yet uh, particularly because I switched to super easy on the port part way through the month and started playing that so of course I'm hoarding lives right. Yeah, <laughs> and I know you're not supposed to do that, but you know my my thing is I want to get to stage two. I want to bomb the castle so I can so I can score off the birds and immediately get that first extend. And uh, you know then I'm also I'm also attempting to as much as I can uh, do metal chaining so that I can start getting more extends. But yeah, I think traditionally speaking, as you play the game. In you know, in on the PCB and in a the general arcade setting, you want to keep your your lives low so that you are getting the the maximum benefit from that rank decrease. Yeah, and I will say, as someone who very stubbornly wanted to play the game with high rank, I was like, well, I'll just be awesome and just play it with high rank, and I want to and I want to <laughs> store these lives. You know, Greg is not going to tell me how to live my life. What ended up happening is a uh, you just hit this massive wall in the later stages that's pretty absurd. It is a dream of mine, though, to one day do that, to get like a mat, like just stock up a ton of lives and just high rank clear the game. But from what I understand, I mean, the, the game really goes out of its way to make sure you don't do that. Yeah, it's quite difficult yeah. <laughs> to reach maximum rank, actually. You will die in the process. Yeah, the, the skill ceiling would have to be absurd at that point. Well, also, though, too, remember, you can jack up your auto fire rate real high, get all your pick up all them items, uh, shoot everything. Uh, it is pretty fun, but uh, it doesn't pay out in the end, but it is fun to do for a bit. Huh. 
That's what's cool about premium mode, though, right? Like, I can't remember how exactly premium mode works in the port, but uh, I do know it, it basically punishes you less with your rank and stuff, and you can uh, make your auto-fire real fast and play with homing options the entire time and just have a good old time, so... If people yeah, are running, rank is fixed running. there. So for, for each stage, I think it's a different number, slowly increasing, but it's um, fixed and will always stay at the same yes. Um, yes. basically rank level. But then you can activate max rank by um, fulfilling some extra conditions, and then the game will get crazy. <laughs> yeah, so if people wanting to play Garega for the first time are having real, real trouble with that rank system, I definitely recommend doing premium mode because that's kind of a nice leveling out of how that works. And you can play with homing the entire time, which is fun. The thing that offsets the the rank in premium mode is the fact that premium throws more medals at you. So it necessitates that either you either ignore the meddling system or you only use it somewhat because you're in you're in a lot of danger by trying to go after every metal because it's something like two or three times the amount of metals that spawn because the item drop sequence changes and metals become so much more frequent. So your scoring potential in premium is a lot higher, but your risk reward, you know, that chasm between risk and reward goes up quite a bit because you're, you're having to zip all over the screen or be very, very specific about your routing to make sure that you're able to collect those medals because it, it really changes the way you have to approach it. Well, I think the nice sort of leveling factor is, uh, which is kind of unusual until you think about it, is uh, jack up your auto fire rate in premium mode and play with like homing the entire time. That, that'll really level it off for you because, uh, you know, in arcade you can't do that because the rank system will punish you, but in premium it won't. Right. So just make your auto fire insanely high and then uh, get homing and let your options just level, lay waste to everything in front of them. It's it's actually really fun. I like the mode a lot. Yeah, I, again, this is a type of mode that I would love to see in a 20th or 30th anniversary. I think we're dealing probably a little over 30 years here for our type or something for Gradius. I would love to see that type of mode added in. Make it happen, M2. Yeah, I, I think they're basically the only people I would uh, hand the reins to for that these days that I can think of. Now, the nice thing about rank is the M2 port of it, right? Where the M2 port has gadgets that allow you to monitor your rank. And you know, just, just like blood pressure, boy, does it go quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge selling point of the port is the ability to keep an eye on that rank. I mean, it's huge. Actually, there was a little bit of a discussion around this uh, Plasmo I remember having where can people who are playing on the port for like high scores have that rank graph on or not? Because it is an advantage over the arcade version where you had to basically summarize or mentally count your rank or whatever. Yeah, on a very, very high skill level, it does matter and I would say um, being able to look at your rank progression um, is an advantage but usually um, like for the for the models it doesn't really matter yeah yeah if you're going for the world record <laughs> then maybe yeah it matters <laughs> I like the way you put that for the mortals <laughs> yeah for the for the shmuppers out there yeah the yeah the high the high score gameplay of Garega 
is a completely different beast than uh, something like my 1cc with Moto, right? It's like a whole nother playing field. Yeah, different game. Yep. So overall, if you want to keep your rank under control, you want to have no more than two extra lives. Ideally, try to stay one and suicide right before gaining an extra life from scoring. Try not to limit. Sorry, try to limit yourself to two options and power up the main shot slowly with large shot icons. Don't set the auto fire rate higher than 10 hertz. Don't pick up excess items, including small weapon fragments. It's truly all you need, or just a small handful for safely bombing. Yeah, and focus on the full, the full uh, power up items rather than the small ones. Yep. Right. And then do not fire when there are no enemies on the screen. Oh yeah. <laughs> good, good. A uh, bit of advice there. Something I struggled with at first too. I think this overview um, to simplify the rank system gets way too little attention. So this is the key to enjoying Garaga, basically. And there's this whole fetishism around the super complexity of Garaga and the rank system and all those numbers. But that really doesn't matter. If you're going all out and if you're shooting for world record tier scores, of course, then you have to look at those numbers. But usually if you just take a look at those um, simple strategies um, that you've just... Um, um, told us here it's it's enough um when you when you follow this um you're good to go you don't have to um look into the rank system too much yeah people really i think it's just because it's fun to kind of talk about how crazy the rank system is and it's also i think kind of a, a nice little way to rationalize why you're getting completely demolished yeah. by this game it's like okay i got completely destroyed by stage five but you know the rank <laughs> it's like okay there might be some other factors <laughs> going on here but okay yeah i think the overemphasis on the rank system and the complexity of the game um puts a lot of players off who cannot really then just simply enjoy the game because they think there's like so much of this invisible system in the background they don't get and that's why they die i don't think it's particularly helpful to um to um, sell Garaga to other people because the game is not that complex actually it's just a very well researched game so we know a lot about it and the wiki page of course looks very complex and um, the strategy guide um, of Icarus on the forum also looks very complex but it's just because the player base is very passionate about it and has found so many things about the game and that's why it looks so complex so theoretically speaking you could make any other game also look that complex and have all those crazy numbers um, but just in reality if you want to play the game there's a few simple things and when you follow them uh, you're good to go you don't um, you don't get crushed by crazy rank i also think that yagawa has a real uh flair for adding in a bunch of like a bunch of noise or a bunch of uh unnecessary details to things that can get really distracting for people where if you get if you get to the heart of what Grega is, it is at, like Plasmo saying it's really not all that complicated. But Yagawa has a real habit of throwing in all these kind of like fun little extras and stuff that can throw people off. For instance, like we're talking about with the ship selection, basically it's pretty straightforward for most people. Just play type A, B, C or type C depending on your ship. But you, it's usually pretty straightforward. But Yagawa's got like A, B. You know, he's got all these different ships and all these different combinations, and it can. I think uh, if you know how to kind of cut through a lot of what the, the game has to offer, it's like Plasma was saying, it's not all that complicated, but 
I think people can get hung up by the just wave of information that can smash you underneath it. So there's definitely a certain depth to the game, um, which of course then uh, also speaks for the longevity and the replayability, and that's the reason why people are still enjoying the game 25 years years later. Um, but if you if you just want to plug and play, have some fun with Garega, it's totally fine. You don't have to pay too much attention to the rank. Yeah, and if you're really worried about it, play premium mode. Uh, they take care of that for you. You just can fly yeah, around and shoot fly stuff. Around. <laughs> like super easy and premium mode are, uh, I think, very good modes to introduce the game. Yeah. Yeah, I came into expecting this to be really hard. Everyone had told me Greg is unlike anything else, and that is, part is definitely true. But it, it's not as hard as, you know, let's say doing your own taxes seems harder than trying to figure out Grega. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. It, it seems simpler, and it, I have to say, in terms of difficulty, I had a harder time with arcade version of Gradius 3 than I did with Grega. Huh. Well, I also think the interesting thing about Grega is it has a real talent for challenging you in different sections of the game. So depending on how you're routing it out, like you could be running into stuff early or you could be running into stuff late. Like when I first started playing Grega, I remember thinking everyone were a bunch of scrubs because I was like, what? This game isn't hard because I was mauling through the first five stages because I was overpowering myself and collecting everything. And then I hit stage six and the game's like, mm -mm. and then I hit this massive, massive difficulty spike. And so um, it is interesting how depending on your routing, you can run into problems in all different sections of the game. Yeah, it, it's all about balance and finding that balance within your d different set of variables like what ship you're choosing, where you're going to get your medals and stuff. And that really keeps the game interesting and unique and people coming back to it. Uh, speaking of coming back here, let's talk about the extends. The extends are the one-ups are awarded for every 1 million points. There's also a hidden extend in stage 3. And there... Yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. Does anybody know where that's at? Yeah, it's inside that robo, robo scooter thing at the start, at, or in the middle of the stage. I don't know what it is. It's like a little tank thing. You have to let it survive until the very end of the stage or near the end of the stage, and it parks itself. And you have to blow it up when it's parked, and then you'll get the extend inside it. Okay, that I did not know. It is on a very, it is a very elaborate hidden extend. It is pretty elaborate, but it's pretty cool. Yeah, you also have yeah. to destroy the um, the side turrets completely. I think. Yes, and yes, yeah. Then destroy the main body only um, after it has come to a halt. So it's kind of tricky to do. It's not easy. Okay. Oh, but when you have the PS4 gadgets activated, you can see the HP yep. of this um, hover tank, and this will help you a lot. So this is why, where um, the PS4 players have a great advantage over AK players. Yep. And then once you learn it, you can kind of, if you want to turn the gadget off, you can, or just keep it on. Yeah, that, that, health, that health gauge is also a huge, hugely beneficial gadget in Grega. Yep. Nice. And there are other modes for those masochists out there. We can do <laughs> and have a harder difficulty. Hold A and press start. The starting rank is 43.2. The extended mode by holding B and pressing start. Two loops. Loop 1 with standard rank and loop 2 starting at the harder rank of 43.2. Well, that's crazy. Yep. And the special mode. Hold A and B and press start. Loop 1 starts at a harder rank of 43.2. 
And loop 2 starts at 70.3 rank. Yeah, special mode is absolutely insane. It's so insane that only one person ever has beaten it. And only once. So that's actually Kamui. And she she tried to do it on the port as well, on the PS4 port at home. But she couldn't she couldn't handle it. Um, it's just so difficult. So this mode was only beaten ever once. Oh... Uh, is I there a replay I can't even of that? imagine Probably playing not, stage right? one. Uh, she did it in the arcade, so there's no replay of it. But mm. um, when she tried it at home to do it again, um, she, I think, um, reached stage 2-5. And you can see that on the, her YouTube channel. Oh, awesome. Man, I, I can't even imagine playing stage one at 70%. Right now. That would just be ridiculous. Another fun thing, since we're talking about the port, is I'm, I found a little fun mode where if you go in, uh, you can make a sort of bullet hell mode where you you bring the rank up to full speed or full amount, but then you go in, this is in the custom settings, and you drop down the bullet speed and you add in some invul- invulnerability on your bombs, and you can kind of turn it into like <laughs> this bullet hell. It's pretty fun. That's an interesting. Uh, that's an interesting detail. And I guess that's something we should touch on because we've been talking about the PS4 port and, you know, one of the things that I think is is important to note is that, you know, the PS4 port, when it came out in uh, 2016, it was the 20th anniversary of the game, essentially. And it's the first time that it had received a console port in almost 20 years because the the arcade game came out in 96, the Saturn port came out in 98, and then it was 2016 before it was available in any form other than the Saturn port or, you know, emulation via MAME or something. So, you know, that came out digitally in Japan, and then it got a physical release in South Korea, which is cool because it comes with a bonus CD soundtrack that has the the twenty six the Rev twenty sixteen arrangement music on there, and then here in North America, uh, Limited Run Games actually put out a premium package. Speaking of premium, oh yeah, with a large box that has uh, really good artwork on it. It has a vinyl version of that same Rev twenty sixteen soundtrack, which is fantastic. It has a a little. A pin that's included, a little metal, Garega metal pin. It's the 10K Max metal emblem, which is really neat. Uh, and then it also has some additional kind of flyers and stuff that sort of mimic the, the, the arcade instruction sheets and stuff like that. And then it has, as a bit of a nod to the Saturn version of the game, it has a reproduction North American style Sega Saturn type case, the big janky plastic long box um, with artwork that looks like what a Battle Garega North American Saturn game could have looked like had the game actually come out here. Uh, And then inside that is a DVD, which is the My Life in Gaming uh, documentary that they did about M2 and kind of talking about the Shot Triggers releases and the amount of work and dedication that they put into making those. Uh, and that's a really nice little bonus extra. But that package, uh, I want to say that was a little over a hundred bucks. So that was a bit of an investment. But I, I knew that I had to have it when when they went and listed that. So 
yeah, I'm one of those idiots that spent money on that. <laughs> I was going to get the Japanese special edition one or whatever it was. Not the limited run, but the one before that. Yeah, right. And then I found out there's no disc in there. I'm like, okay, screw that, right? There's like no disc. Yeah. So then I was going to get the Korean one, and then Play Asia kept canceling my order. So I ended up like, all right, fine, I give up. So I think I, no, wait, I did get it off of like eBay or something. I'm pretty sure. I need to double check. I can't remember if I have the disc or not, but I remember a lot of shenanigans of trying to get a hold of it. Yeah, it definitely yeah. had its price point where it was really hard to find for a while and really expensive, and then all of a sudden, then it went dirt cheap, and then it sort of leveled off again. Yeah, I wonder what the Korean version is. Let me look. Yeah, one of the nice things about the Korean version is it, it has received more than one print run, which is a good a good sign, because it means that at least the game has been selling for uh, M2. Because last time I looked, which was just a few days ago, it was still available on Play Asia, um, and I think it was something like fifty or sixty bucks or something like that. Yep, you can get it for sixty-five on eBay as well. Okay, the Korean one, right? Yeah, and the Korean release is a solid package. I have that one too. I bought that one initially, and then it was maybe a year later they announced the limited run one and when i saw that it was going to be the english translated version and it was going to have the vinyl release i'm like well that's my kryptonite i have to have that <laughs> and limited so, run signed up for more than just one game with m2 so i'm curious to see if there'll be something coming out this year i'm hoping for ketsui or maybe uh dengan fever and i'm i'm willing to bet my leg it's ketsui if they do one it's going to be cat Katsui would be a good bet, although uh, I believe it's Josh Fairhurst, if I'm if I'm thinking right, from uh, Limited Run, has stated on Twitter that he has been working to try and get both Danganfeveren and Maho Daisakusen or Sorcerer Striker so that those can be released. So, well, the issue with those is well, Dangan Dangan's possible. The issue with Maho is uh, there's no English translation, right? So he'd have to get M2 to translate it. And right. Katsui has an English translation now. So, I mean, the... It do, yeah, yeah, it does now. lining up. So that, that definitely makes Katsui a strong, strong release candidate. And even though I already bought the uh, original Japanese release, that would be an easy double dip for me. Just because of how good a game it is and how much easier it would be to play with translated menus yeah i was thinking about the same thing too because i've been going back and forth from my parents house and my house and my brother has a ps4 so i could actually put a disc to use by carrying it over there and putting it in his ps4 so if they release the ps4 one i might buy it if it's gonna be like a billion dollars or whatever but if it's like a, a fair price I'll, I'll buy it yeah yeah but i mean the limited run package for you know, for all of its excess, which I I sort of enjoy, you know, I am glad that they did it and that, you know, at least at least we got one of these games in this kind of form where, you know, it's preserved. And it to me it's it's a it's a landmark because Garega finally got a Western release, if you will, in in a real form, not just a digital, oh here, go download it on the the eShop or, or PSN or whatever, but, you know, it's something I can hold in my hand that says, yes, I can pop this into my system and play Garega 
was really cool to finally have. Yeah, that. I like I like what Limited Run does and stuff, and I like that they did one for Griga. My biggest issue has been uh, just uh, sometimes I just can't buy them because they're so expensive. But uh, you know, if I have if I have the money on me, I might buy it. It it's, it's all comes down to what's in my pocket at the time. Right. Yep, I understand. And we're kind of, we've kind of entered a time, not to get too far off the subject here, but we've kind of entered a time where we almost have a, a bit of an embarrassment of riches in terms of shmup releases, because you've got yeah, limited run, got stuff and coming strictly out. limited, and first press games now doing the um, Nico Navy, or Nico Navy, and now the uh, Natsuki Chronicle, and Ginga Force for PS4. You know, you've got several of these publishers now that are doing these these short runs. So for guys like myself who want to have that physical product in hand, you kind of have to plan and budget your uh, your gaming dollars accordingly and determine what what you want and what stuff you can kind of let pass you by. Yeah. You know, there've been a couple of physical shmup releases from a smaller publishers I've had to let go. You know that that I've had to pass up on, but then some of these. Then when I budget the the money for it, then okay, well, I can budget the little bit extra so I can get the uh, you know the the limited edition or whatever with the CD soundtrack and that kind of a stuff because I'm a sucker for those kinds of things. So well, if they ever do a Dodonpachi release and they release some extra premium Wowzer Dodonpachi version that has like you know Yagao or has uh, Ikeda's notebook from high school where he's you know, drawing pictures of hibachi or something, I'd buy it. You know, I, I think it's just like depending on if it's if you're crazy enough. Uh, I would pretty, I would go all in on something like that for Dodonpachi. Sure. <laughs> like if it came with a button and said do do Dodonpachi, <laughs> yeah, I would buy it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. You well now that we went off on that tangent, would you like to talk about the graphics? Yeah. I really like the the design of the game. You know, it's kind of got a bit of a steampunk feel to it, but not fully. It's almost like it sort of commits to the steampunk aesthetic, but it doesn't but it doesn't go all in because there's other designs that are more kind of straight up mechanical. So it's an interesting mix. I'm going to I'm going to put a bold statement out here. I would say that Grega is probably the best shmup as far as graphical design or among the best it's really high up there for me i feel like and whenever i look at game i find myself talking about grega's graphical design in videos that have nothing to do with grega a lot just because it's such a great example of attention to detail style aesthetic um almost to a fault right with like the non-colored bullets but outside of that i i definitely would put grega up there as one of the best visually made shmups ever Yes, definitely have to agree here. And I really like about Garega that it's, yeah, well, the, the dark and grimy atmosphere and everything looks so dirty and shrapnel everywhere, stuff boiling up and smoke. Um, that's really what I like most about um, Garega. And I can't really have that kind of atmosphere in any other um, shooting game. I mean, look at Cave and all those colorful bullets and the the blue bullets um, we all love and um, everything looks looks so well colorful and shiny and flashy in the later games especially and Garega's just the polar opposite to this i do wonder if uh 
uh, DOJ has some sort of uh, influence from Griga as far as the visuals, because that one, that's my favorite looking cave game is DOJ. And I kind of feel like they looked at Griga's Griga's color palette and they're like, yeah, let's do that because it's much more toned down compared to DDP and of course the later ones. It has that sort of like steampunk, I don't know what, like World War II, but in the future style to it, uh, especially Griga. So yeah, I think me and Plasma have very strong, uh, similar taste in this regard that I'm a huge fan of the style of Griga. And also the attention to detail is pretty ridiculous at times where you'll you'll see like little things they add in here and there. I think Raising in general is just really good about this across all their games, but uh, Grega, I, I find their best. Yeah, I would have to concur with that. I'd say the attention to detail along with creating a world that feels lived in. Not everything is squeaky clean, as was mentioned. It's, it goes a long way to selling the the experience and that, that you're really fighting an army with your little, um, your samurai guy if you're playing with the extra ships or with your little biplane is really taking an army. I, I think that Steel Empire did this for me too, where it really the did a lot of world building just by its looks. Yeah. Mm-hmm, and, and I think the, the steampunk aesthetic certainly helps with that because it is somewhat foreign to what we're used to with things like even, I mean, putting aside the mecha designs in something like Strikers 1945-2 or Strikers 1945, but, you know, you you take a look at a game like that, and outside of those kind of mecha designs, most everything that you see in the game has a pretty high level of plausibility to it in terms of its design. So... Something like Garega or Steel Empire, because everything is is so different and looks so different, and you know the the first boss in Garega shoots out all these bullets at you, but then when you get to the point where you damage it enough to bring out the big gun on the top of the ship, you know it's essentially shooting these gigantic bullets at you. You know they're not. You know, the big shells that they're, it's shooting at you, they're not missiles. They're like really, really, really big <laughs> bullets. bullets that you would shoot out of a rifle. Yeah. But they're just huge. Yeah, they're giant, you know, sniper bullets that blow up cities, I guess. Yeah. So it's just a very different a very different approach, and it, it lends itself well, like you said, Addicted, to world building, where it's sort of transporting you into this other place that is sort of a retro future kind of pastiche but it's it's definitely its own thing someone should make a battle Griga film wouldn't that be awesome like christopher nolan it's like you know what let's make a battle Griga movie <laughs> let's make it happen that would be cool yeah i've thought about i've thought about what you could do with something like that would you want to do it as a film or would you you know would you want to do a like an anime kind of a thing I would want like a Christopher Nolan. What was that movie Christopher Nolan did before the pandemic and everything? That was like a World War One movie. Something- Dunkirk. Yeah, something like that. That would be pretty cool. I know. I know. Plaz would like that. I'm <laughs> Maybe, assuming. Yeah. I'm assuming. Yeah. <laughs> when when Garega's in the title. Yeah. Yeah, I quite liked Dunkirk, so I could I could get on board for something like that. One thing one thing that I I wanted to mention too is. Someone on my stream last night, when we were talking about Garega, mentioned that 
that gun the I, I mentioned the connection between the aesthetic connection between gun frontier and Garega and uh, this individual said that uh, gun frontier was actually Yagawa's favorite game and so that's why Garega's aesthetic design is so heavily inspired by gun frontier and I didn't know if I if anyone else could corroborate that because um, I hadn't read or heard that anywhere else yet, but it would make sense given how much of Garega's look and some of its design elements seem to kind of take inspiration from Gun Frontier. I'm not sure. That's out of my knowledge of the game. I have no idea. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure if it was his favorite game, but um, I would also say that... Um, you can't deny the inspiration um, Garega took off from um, Gun Frontier, so that's pretty clear. The games are definitely related very closely, aesthetically, um, but probably, yeah, um, Yagawa liked it, I guess. Hmm. Yeah, I just thought that was an interesting detail, and, uh, you know, worth worth mentioning, at least. Yeah. The other thing that I want to, that I guess I want to touch on is, is I know, I don't want to I don't want to belabor the point about the bullet visibility, but there are other bullet types in the game besides the sort of long gray bullets that people seem to have the most trouble. I know you mentioned, Mark, the little ones. There's the tiny little yellow bullets that also oh, can be one. difficult to yellow, see. Yeah, the yellow ones are, uh, they're not too bad. The ones I'm talking about are these uh, in stage five or six. I can't remember the stages. The one, the, the factory though. They're these little, little tiny little sliver bullets. They cannot be much larger than a few pixels. And they just kind of sneak their way in with all the other bullets. And so you're dodging the bigger bullets and you're like, okay, I'm doing well. And then all of a sudden this little tiny one just drifts into you and you blow up. Those are the ones yeah. I have the most problems with. Are those the ones that shoot shot by the uh, little small ships that look like... Um... It almost look like bugs or maybe a flying fortune cookies. I I can't remember what scary. enemy shoots them, to be honest. I don't know if it's the little tanks or... I can't remember where they come from, but uh, they're these hmm. little guys. Yeah, I know the, the little tiny yellow ones I have difficulty with, particularly with the stage three boss, because once you get to the point where it's doing the large volley... Oh, yeah. Um, ...from the cannon in the back, it's doing a really fast volley of these giant sort of fireballs uh but then also you're getting the little yellow bullets that come from that and then also from those uh little front loaded uh, guns on the tank and so it can be difficult to kind of navigate those two because because I'm, I'm trying to make sure that i'm positioned correctly to not get hit by the large ones but then also i have to try and kind of quickly weave through the small ones as well and you know, try not to get hit by either or both. <laughs> so I feel like I with struggle those, with those. A I feel little like bit. with those little small yellow ones, they're just all hitbox. Like they're just a flying hitbox, where you know there's no wiggle room. If they hit you, you're just dead. That's how I always feel about those yellow, little yellow ones. Is they're they're small, but they pack a real uh, punishing hit if they get on you. Whereas you know, normally with hit, with bullets, you have a little bit of a leeway with the with the sprite or whatever, but I feel like with those little yellow ones, they're the, the entire sprite is a hitbox, basically. Yeah, I'm wondering about that with some of the some of the bullet types because obviously with cave games, you've got some things that 
the the entire bullet sprite is not is is not going to damage you. Oh yeah. Where you know certain bullet types, where they're orbs, for example, they might be two or three colors. You know, like a two tone purple or a two tone blue or whatever, and it's only the inner portion that has a hurt box that can that can damage your your ship or whatever. So I'm wondering how much of that is present in Garega, or if this was an idea that sort of came about around this time with something like Dompachi and started to be more fully implemented later in stuff like Dodonpachi or you know, Mushihime-sama, or those kinds of things. For the most part, I feel like uh, the bullets, at least from my experience, are all pretty dense, where if the sprite tags you, you're, you're done. You know, you don't have too much wiggle room on those. You, right. nev- you never know, though. I mean, there could be some of them that might be a little bit more forgiving in places, but... Yeah, it's kind of difficult to say, but um, I, think, I think so, too. So the hitbox and um, the sprite image probably are quite close to each other. Okay. Well, let's talk about the sound. Because this is an area that I may or may not diverge a little bit from some of, you know, some of the Garega fans out there. One thing I I am in agreement with with a lot of people is that this is an iconic soundtrack and Manabu Namiki really made something that is is catchy and memorable and fun to listen to even outside of the game and I, I think there's a reason that there's four different versions of the soundtrack included with the the M2 port and in particular you know I, I think my favorite of the of the remixes is the Rev 2016 mix that that uh, Manabu Namiki did himself because it's it stays the closest to the arcade version while also sounding updated and a little bit more robust with maybe some slight different, I guess you call them instrument choices that just make it sound a little less like a mid nineties arcade game and a little bit more like something that you would play outside of the game. The Saturn mix, the first time I heard it, I didn't like it. I thought, this doesn't sound like it fits. But when I started playing with it more, and I listened to it more, I kind of got what they were going for. Sort of a more jazzy, contemporary kind of feel for the game. It doesn't fit with the steampunk aesthetic of the game any better than the original soundtrack did. But it's sort of an interesting uh, an interesting take on the the soundtrack. The one exception to that would be the the boss theme. I think is a little bit too understated in the Saturn mix, and it's almost too quiet. Um, so you really don't get that that kind of pulsating, throbbing um, baseline, and you know the more kind of cold sound that you get from the the arcade and the Rev 2016 mix that sort of kind of hypes you up for the boss fight. I feel like the boss theme is almost too too slight in the Saturn version. But otherwise, I it's kind of grown on me for sure. 
yeah, I like the Saturn version. I play with it pretty often. Uh, I like the funkier sound, though. It's like, hey, you know, it's it, it's a little bit more upbeat and funky, like you're saying. Yeah. The, the perfect mix, I didn't listen to that one that much, and I don't know who did that one, but it didn't seem different enough or unique enough among, you know, what was already available to, to really listen to it a whole lot while I played. I'm going to have to give the perfect mix another listen because I think the idea of it was, from what I can tell listening to it, is like sort of just like a remaster, like an actual remaster. Maybe they just play with the levels a little bit, play with the balancing a bit, make the bass just right and stuff. I'll have to give it another listen and see, but yeah, I usually don't yeah. listen to it all that often. The, the perfect mix is the one that I think defaults to when you play premium, but where I'm going to, where I'm going to, potentially diverge from other, you know, from fans of the game is the sound effects generally speaking I think are kind of weak. And I say that in the sense that one of the sort of visceral pleasures of playing shooting games is the sound. And I'm a big sound guy because I'm a big music guy but I also appreciate sound design and being able to kind of have the sound be part of the overall experience of a game and sort of helping to immerse you into the experience. A lot of the sound effects in Garega are very understated. Like your shot, uh, your shot sound or whatever is so slight that you can barely hear it. Now, I prefer that to games that you know, older 8-bit games and things like that, where the sound effect for shooting is so piercing and overpowering that you hear that over the music. But it almost seems like a game with such style, like Garega, should maybe have sound effects that are a little bit, a little bit more, I don't know, intense, or, I don't know, explosions don't seem as crunchy or punchy as maybe they could be. So, I don't know, what do you guys think? I think the idea is that because the sound of uh, the soundtrack is so like Detroit techno or whatever, and they're really bringing <laughs> out the bass in the soundtrack, they probably didn't want to cloud up the bass channels too much with all these, you know, like low crunches and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it kind of has. A, I was just listening to some of the sound effects while you're talking. It does have a like a a higher end to the sound effects where they they're a little bit more in the mid range and stuff. I think it kind of works with the the soundtrack and everything, but um, yeah, it's hard for me to. It's also like hard for me to imagine them replacing the sound the sound effects too much. But uh, you never know. I mean, someone could come up with really cool alternative sound effects, and you'd be like, yeah, these fit better. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting. I haven't really um, thought about it, but now that you mention it, um, indeed, I think the explosion sound effects um, and um, all stuff like this really is kind of underrepresented but i never really missed it because the soundtrack's just so good and i just want to listen to the music um but you're right yeah explosion definitely could be a little bit more crunchier i think i do like the uh the bullet sound effect though when you shoot i do like that yeah it does yeah. kind of have a nice whoosh to it yeah it, it does have a nice like it's got a nice crunch to it but it's not distracting i do like the bullet right. shots I also like the option sound effect when you change your option, it makes that clicking noise. Oh, that's that's a good one. Yeah, I really like this. Yeah. 
Yeah, that that does provide an, a good um, audio feedback so that you know that you're, you know, it's not just the visual representation of the options moving on screen, but you get that audio feedback as well. So that is a nice touch. It's a good point. What about you, Addicted? Uh, what about me? Uh, I like all of the soundtracks. My favorite has to be the arranged soundtrack. And I, it's, it's because it's different, I guess. I spent so much time listening to the arcade, and I spent time listening to the Saturn version by playing it over... As I knew that we were going to announce this and get ready to this, throughout the month of December, I played a lot of the Saturn version. Mostly to test out my new mode. Hey, if, if you got the hardware, might as well try it out. So, <clears throat> so I was playing so much of that, I, I don't know, maybe I just got a little ear sick of it. And that's why I prefer the remix a little bit more. But really, you can't go wrong. And I don't... I agree that the sound effects are a little bit understated compared to the music, but the music is just so good that I didn't even notice. Yeah, and I gotta say, stage four. Uh, I can't think of what the name of the track is, but that is my jam in this game. I love that that song. Is that the cloud stage? Uh, that's stage five. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's stage five. My stage th- four is the one where you start out over the water and oh, you go into... Yeah all these turrets and things that pop up out of the water. It says here, uh, degeneracy. Right. Stage four plant. Okay. My stage three is a factory and stage five cloud. Uh, stage six is the base and stage seven is the airport. Yeah. My favorite right. by far is cloud. I love the cloud stage. And I, especially if you go into your M2 port and you boost that base up, and you just hit the, let that bass hit. Oh yeah, I, my favorite by far is the cloud stage. I you'll hear it in a, tons of my videos in the background because I like it so much. Uh, cloud nice. stage is cloud stage is my favorite by far. I mean the music's great in that stage along with the visual effects. I don't like it so much in the Saturn version. I think that the lightning and the way the clouds move is a little bit understated, but the arcade version does it really does a visual number on it. Yeah, stage five. I think gameplay-wise, music-wise, atmosphere-wise, everything's just perfect. It's um, definitely my favorite stage. And when it comes to the music, I have to say that my guilty pleasure is probably stage four with a Saturn remix, with a super cheesy jazz yes. arrangement. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> yes. Like the when the the saxophone is um, hitting in, it's it's so. I don't know. It it, it fascinates me. It's fun. Um, it's, it's 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 fun. very special atmosphere. <laughs> very nice. There's nowhere on way to Gregor. That's true. Well, let's move into scoring then, uh, and you know maybe just talk a little bit about the best way to approach scoring. You know, I took I I dropped some info from the shmups.wiki page again. Shout out to the uh, wiki team. I mean, obviously, item collection, you're going to get points for. Uh, but as we've noted, from a rank and survivability standpoint, you really don't want to gather too many items. So while that is a technique for scoring, it's probably only really more ap- more useful for playing the port, either in super easy or on uh, premium mode. When you're actually playing the arcade game, uh, you kind of want to avoid picking up as many items as you can. It, it says here, damage optimization 
So, many enemies throughout the game will award different point values depending on whether they are destroyed with a special weapon or a standard non-penetrating shot. In addition, many, many enemies will drop set items under special conditions, often metals or valuable resources. So kind of getting back to your earlier point, Plasmo, about how the game can seem like it's impenetrable or it's overly complex. This is one of those things that I read on the wiki and then think, okay, so what are some of these conditions and what are some of these things? And and then it makes it seem like, wow, scoring in a game like this is going to be a, you know, a job unto itself. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any insight into this in terms of, are there any known factors like this with certain enemy types or specific spots in the game where you should always use your special weapon or make sure that you're taking out a certain enemy with your uh, your option weapon, for example, rather than a regular shot. You know, are there are there good examples of this that players can take uh, and use in in their routing? Yeah, unfortunately, you cannot predict this at all. So the enemies have um, fixed values, and sometimes they differ whether you destroy them with your regular shot or, for example, with a with a uh, um, penetrating shot. So this this makes a difference for scoring, um, definitely. Um, the, I would say there are not too many enemies that differ in values. Um, some bosses and boss parts um, do, so it matters a little bit more there, I would say, very generally speaking. But yeah, yeah, this is definitely where the death comes in. So this aspect of the scoring system is a little bit more complex, needs a little bit more learning. Um, I mean, stuff like picking up medals is uh, straightforward, right? Just pick up the medals. But when it comes to um, what's called here damage optimization, then it becomes a little bit more complicated indeed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was something I was curious about because one of the things when I was playing throughout the, the course of the month, one of the things I noticed in uh, Stage 2 with the Stage 2 boss if I approach that boss in a specific way, uh, for example, if I if I get up close to the boss and I'm along the right side, kind of shooting at the outer ring of, I don't even know what you call them, that it will almost always start off with the blue laser thing. But if I hang back at the back of the screen or I'm somewhere else and I approach it in a different way, it may start out by... Uh, shooting out all kinds of bullets and things at me instead. And so I didn't know how much of that... Oh, that's that random, actually. The boss just selects um, one of three patterns at random, so you cannot control it no matter what you do. Okay, so it's it's RNG then? Yeah, it's, it's basically RNG, and um, it's, it's not really connected to um, how you approach the boss and whether you're hitting it with piercing or non-piercing bullets and stuff like that. I think all the values of the different parts of the boss, I, I think, should be the same. Um, yeah, but it's it's an awfully complicated section of the game. I think when you watched the, what was it, like seven hour long um, commentary video we've made on Battlegaraga, we yeah. spent at least one or two hours alone on stage two boss because this section is just awfully oh complex. <laughs> yeah. That I mean that boss can be an early wall for sure. Yes. And here I am, I just 
blowing it up every time I play. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, bully for you, Mark. <laughs> I know, right? I'm that. I do know. I do know when I play Grega, I need to start learning the scoring better. Uh, I think it's better to refer to Plasmo for the scoring because my understanding is pretty simple. It's just collect medals. You know, when you die, you make sure you don't drop your metal chain when you die. I, I think that's the extent of my scoring, to be honest. <laughs> sure. Well, and I mean, you know, I know there's things like like milking with bosses, picking them apart. You know, that's something I was doing with the stage one boss was trying to learn very specifically to take out those, you know, the two the two cannons at, on the underside of the wings first uh, or, or take out the I guess there's the two spread cannons that kind of are at the center of the plane. I try to take out the right one first once I take out the fins or whatever going along. That way I'm cutting down on the amount of crap it's throwing at me. Then I'll take out the the cannons um, that you know shoot out from the bottom of the wings, and then once I've got one of those down, then the then there's a like an, another cannon or whatever that shoots out from the back of the propeller portion, and you can shoot down those bullets as it shoots out at you, and so you can kind of milk some extra points by doing that, and you can do that on both sides. And then you can also, then when you take out the second of those spread cannons that's at the center of the ship, and then you get that big cannon to come out, then you can make sure that you destroy that cannon, and then you kind of get a final pattern of spread shots that come out. And so you can kind of use that as a, uh, a way to sort of maximize the amount of score you get for that boss. There's probably strategies like that for each boss, but... You know, obviously, I didn't have enough time to really dig in and learn that for every boss. But I know I've seen footage of Kamui and a couple of others doing things, like we said earlier, with the the tail option, where you know you position it specifically to shoot the propellers up top of that stage one boss or the its reappearance later in uh, what is it stage five or six or something like that. You know, and, and, and techniques like that to really to really milk those kinds of areas. Or there are other places where you can get tick points for shooting boss uh, a part of a boss that can't be damaged but can still be hit. And so you can continue to eke out more points by doing that. Obviously, those are a more high-level strategy, but I still think it's worth mentioning. The other thing is... Is we kind of mentioned it before, you know, Mark, you made mention of the stage three there at the beginning where you blow up that the sort of lattice work or whatever that's along the, the bottom there, and that'll reveal metals. There are lots of places in the game to do that. Shooting the tanks uh, in stage two while they're rolling over the buildings, that will reveal a metal. Bombing most buildings or structures in the game will reveal metals of some kind some more than others and it seems like that's that's quite the rabbit hole that you can kind of go down to sort of learn where all the places are in order to get medals one of the things that i that i found in stage four as you approach the end of the stage you've got these uh, i'm trying to think of how to word it there's the two sides where you've got structure and then in between 
there are these, I don't know if you call them supports or trusses or whatever, but they're like metal deals that go across. And if you bomb those, you'll get a whole row of metals. And I've watched, you know, high level players that will fire at that with their special weapon and then pick up all the medals in sequence as they kind of fly across the screen. But when I was playing, I noticed that if you bomb or you fire at it along one side, they kind of come out in a uniform fashion. Whereas if you try to, if you shoot at those, those metal deals in the center, it sort of comes out in a, in a V fashion and it's way harder to actually collect those and get them all and not drop your metal chain. So I'm wondering when you're playing with something like Miyamoto, where his special is basically covers the screen. If you're back far enough, do you have to go and, you know, get up right in the, along the edge of the screen in order to fire at the thing to be more specific about it? Or, you know, how do you approach that? Um, so in regards to those rails, um, the way they break up, you actually have three patterns. Um, either it breaks up from the left side, from the right side, or from the center. And again, this is down to RNG. So no matter how you hit it, if you hit it on the left, it can blow up on the right, and uh, vice versa, and in the center as well. So you cannot control it, which means you oh. um, actually have to react to it, which makes it quite challenging. And I would say that um, these metal whales are probably by far the most difficult part of the game, picking up all of them. So what you can do is you can um, also blow up the, the houses on the right and left yeah, side yeah. of the screen as well. So you um, can leave some metals on there and blow up the metal rails and pick up as many uh, as you can from the rails. And then to not break your metal chain, you can pick up some of the metals you have left behind um, from the houses. So this way you can keep your metal chain and um, make the most of it. And of course, super players are going for like every single medal, but that's right, a right. very, very difficult section. Okay, that makes sense. I did not realize that you couldn't control the yeah. the way that those rails break and the trajectory of the medals then. Yeah, unfortunately not. I mean, it makes sense that um, when you blow it up from the right and then it will also start dropping the medals from the right, but yeah, that's not how it works, unfortunately. Okay. So realistically then, the best strategy would be to blow it up as soon as it comes on screen so that you have ample screen space and time to react to it properly. Yeah, you have a specific timing for each of the four rails and have to um, approach them all quite differently, I would say. Um, some are more difficult than others. Um, the last one is probably the safest and the first three are a little bit more difficult. And of course, then it also matters um, which ship you are playing with because um, your special weapon looks completely different each time. And as you say, the um, like Miyamoto's bomb is um, screen covering, so you will hit um, necessarily more than the rail, just the rail. You also automatically will hit some of the houses, which can be an issue, but can also be maybe used to your advantage. And yeah, depending on the special weapon, it all changes. It's quite a complicated section as well. But I wouldn't oh, really oh. worry too much about it. Um, probably when you're just um, starting out with the game, I would recommend maybe not bombing there at all. Just um, don't try to pick up those medals. It's not that important anyway. Sure. Okay. 
Are there any other scoring tricks or tips that you would that you would say are important to remember? Probably, I would just go for the medals. Try to not um, break your medal chain all too often, and maybe dismantle some of the bosses when you feel confident enough. And that's that's pretty much it, I would say. Okay. So really, realistically, then only only when you get to the much more high level scoring, you know, once you've kind of mastered the game, is probably when you when you want to start looking at picking apart every boss specifically or uh, finding ways to absolutely eke out every metal that you can kind of a thing. Yeah, it doesn't really matter that much before. I mean, still the most points you will get from progressing further into the game. So just by surviving and um, keeping metals up, um, you're good to go. Right. Yeah, and that, that was one of the interesting changes, too, with the the uh, super easy mode on the port is that in arcade, if you let the medals fall off the screen and not collect them and you're not able to collect something to keep your chain going, then it resets to, to zero. Whereas it's a little bit more forgiving in super easy where you can let a couple of them go and your metal chain will go down a couple notches but not reset back to default. So it definitely gives you a little bit of leeway there. So moving on, we have our thoughts from the R of Gen community. From Gamer707B, my favorite shooter, but sadly I suck at it. Still love it though. <laughs> the game has so much depth that people are still discovering things about it. That's nuts. And the look, ah. Uh... Heck, I might get a quick credit run in tonight. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those scenes that you you look at and you're like, oh shoot, it only takes a couple minutes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Zoido, he piped in and said, I'm a really poor Garega player, but uh, still haven't figured out how the rank management and scoring exactly works, and I played it quite a bit. I get along a bit better with easy and arranged, but arcade still wrecks me every time. Love the game anyway, and it has one of the best video game soundtracks ever made, if you ask me. I think there's quite a few people who would agree with you there, Zoido. Yep, as uh, DJ Psycho and one would say, Hot James. <laughs> yes. Alright, well, Zoido ended up being the only person to submit scores during the month of January. Uh, so... Uh, by default, his are the high high scores here. In the arcade mode, he got 1,976,580. He said uh, he reached the stage 3 boss. Uh, on premium, he got 8,639,770, reaching Blackheart in stage 7. Uh, and then super easy, he got a clear with 7,316,720. Now, I wish I had got my clear during January, because my clear this morning was actually a little over 8 million points, so I could have I could have said that I beat Zoido at something, <laughs> but unfortunately it didn't happen during that time. But we still have all of 2021 for people to submit scores for us to tally at the end of the year, and I'm hoping to finally get the score spreadsheet up uh, and post it on the, on the forum or, uh, you know, a link to it on the forum 
so that if we have other people that want to participate, they can submit their scores and we can get them into that spreadsheet. So, final thoughts. If you had to sum up your thoughts about Garega in a very succinct way, what would you say? To give a quick impression of Garega, I'd probably compare it to something like Black Licorice, where at first you may not initially like the taste. It may seem a little bit strange. Garega might put you off because it is so unique and you may think, oh, this is overrated, isn't that good? But the more you play Garega, the more you get familiar with it, you, the more you understand how it works and what it wants you to do, the more you realize how awesome the game is and you will develop a real taste for it that other games can't quite satisfy. So I think if I were to put Garega in a nutshell, that's how I would describe it. And over time, it has definitely become one of my favorite shmups, probably my second favorite after Dodonpachi. So yes, I can't recommend this game enough. Definitely play Battle Garega and give it the time it needs let it grow on you. Nice. Yeah, from my side as well. Uh, very high recommendation. I usually don't rank um, shmups because I cannot decide, but um, I would say Garega is definitely very high up there. Maybe number one. Um, could be. Um, for me, it's just the gift that keeps on giving. Um, every time I start playing this game again, it just gives me so much joy. It's um, absolutely fantastic. Um, I usually play on the PCB, that's how I enjoy the game. And yeah, I don't think I will um, ever drop the game. It feels like um, having continuously different breaks with other games and then just returning to Garega. Um, that's that's the one game I will keep on playing. And it was the 25th anniversary, I think three days ago. So yeah, I'm looking forward for the next 25 years with this game. Yeah, it was kind of serendipitous that we uh, that we put Garega in uh, in you know January of this year without even realizing that it was going to be the 25th anniversary. Um, so that was kind of a nice uh, happy accident. Yeah, perfect timing. Yeah, for myself, I I think this is one of those games that, as I said before, I was initially put off by it years ago just playing it on MAME and not really understanding anything about it or how to properly approach the game in order to kind of get more out of it than just throw in a credit, play a little bit, die, rinse and repeat. Now that I understand more about it and how deep it is, I have a much deeper appreciation for the game. Even if I still find it a little bit harder to approach than I think some other games, I do think that it is well worth the time to pick up and play, particularly because of the M2 port now, where you have super easy to make it way more accessible, or premium to make the game still more accessible than perhaps the original arcade mode, but also have its own level of challenge built in into that. And so I really do think that it's the importance of this game cannot be understated, but I also think more than that even is this is a game that I think should be played by most anyone who's into shooting games and should be understood for not just how important it is, but just how, how well put together it is. You know, I know, Mark, you've talked about how Dodonpachi is kind of a flawed masterpiece in the sense that it's it's 
There's so much going on with it, but yet there's all kinds of jank. This game, like like you said, Plasmo, it almost feels like a whole series of, of happy accidents. And yet, underneath all of that, it, it feels like a lot of that was very well-intentioned and well-thought-out, even if sometimes the way that the RNG kind of dials in might give you a different experience one time and then you know you might have a much easier time the next time but it seems as though when i play this game it feels like like it's all supposed to be there i guess that's the the best way i can say it what about you addicted i would have to say that the biggest hurdle for people getting into grega is its reputation as soon as people can get past that it really is something that the more you put into it, the more you're going to get out of it. It has something for people who are just starting out. It has something for people who are looking for a challenge on there. There's many different ways you can deal with the system. It, in some ways, reminds me of like a STG Legos because there's many different ways you can tackle it and many different ways you can end up with different things. Huh. It really has something for everyone as long as they're willing to put into the time and and see see what is actually what what the grega actually is nice and now you got me wanting someone to make a lego stg (laughs) i'm sure if they can make one with a finger i'm sure they can make one with legos there you go all right well what do we have coming up next Snow. <laughs> uh, all right. What we have coming up next is, as we're recording this, we are in the month of February, and we are currently playing Under Defeat for the arcade and the Dreamcast, and Under Defeat HD for the Xbox 360 and PS3. Yes. And next month, it's time to break out the Shamrock Shakes and the Thick Sprites. We are going to be playing Demonizer. Awesome. So I, I fully expect Mark to come back. <laughs> That's a relatively new game. Yes, it is. Now, that'll be an interesting one to kind of tackle, since it's a fairly recent Dojin release on PC. All right. I'd like to send shout-outs and greetings and salutations to Studio Mudprints in Bullet Heaven for the beautiful design of the logo. We have, and speaking of logo, we have it on podcast shirts, which they can find at where, Fro? Uh, Redbubble. Just shirts for Shoot the Core dash Cast. like to thank Kogusu for the intro and outro music. Everybody at RFGen and the RFGen Playcast. I'd like to thank Metal Fro for always making it entertaining with uh, one his one man, two chihuahuas, and an STG show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Like to thank Plasmo and Mark MSX for joining us and helping us fill out a lot of the mystery, which is Battle Garega. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was an honor. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Uh, if you'd like to connect with us, you can follow us on Twitter at ShootCoreCast. You can also follow me directly at GameBoyGuru. Please come join RFGeneration.com and join us for a shmup playthrough, a shmup club uh, selection. And also subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your preferred platform. Uh, speaking of which, you can go to link t 
tr.ee/shootthecorecast to get links to all of the platforms and places where you can find us online. Uh, also, join the Discord channel for RF Generation, which is linked right at the front page. And we do have the dedicated Shoot the Corecast topic where you can come and discuss the Shmup Club Game of the Month, talk about uh, an episode of the podcast, or just discover, just uh, talk about shooting games in general, which we do semi-frequently. And as uh, Addicted mentioned, you can follow me on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash gamemeboy to watch me stream the Shmup of the Month, among other things. Uh, anything else that we need to touch on quick before we wrap up? Well, I would like to add in the Electric Underground somewhere in there. Uh, I would add in the uh, Discord channels for Mark, but I think that might add an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the thousand Discord channels. Uh, yeah, if you want to check me out, check me out on the Electric Underground on YouTube. And also check out Plasmo's Twitter because it's full of awesome world records and news so make sure to follow him too on twitter and his youtube channel so check out plasma as well <laughs> thanks man yeah yeah your your twitter account definitely is one to follow because it's interesting to to see the retweets of all the high scores and uh things like that from some of the particularly some of the japanese super players uh but then also following your progress in pink sweets yeah high scores is all i care about <laughs> And soon, hopefully, we'll see more Dodonpachi ones, but uh, don't embarrass me too much with your progress. Make sure you learn at a, a pace that's not too All embarrassing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you need to spend a year and a half before you get your two all, and then from there, you know, just slowly. <laughs> I will try. I will try. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, thank you all so much for listening, and uh, stay safe out there. We will see you next month. Adios. See ya.